0: Chuck, so nice to see you. We've been having our our meeting of the Chuck Uh, Farah fan.
1: I I
2: was uh, turning all all kinds of shades of of red. I appreciate all the very nice things that were said about me. I felt like uh, taking off my headphones. And in fact, I did a couple of times. (laughs) But thank you, everybody, very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. You know, I I would like to open with uh, with a mistake. Actually, I got on. I'd like, uh,
3: to, I'd like to thank you, Chuck, for um, retracting the Skyscope that you posted. Oh, in the oh
2: absolutely! Oh, absolutely! And you know, there there is uh, there are some things to that story. There is uh, a Skyscope anti-drone radar system on on the building in the University of Moscow. Okay, that's that's a finding of fact. When Skyscope, came, Skycope came out with a statement saying they didn't sell it to Russia, you know that that makes a difference. So as soon as we got that information, not only did we publish a retraction, first of all, I also left the mistaken post up, so it stood with the retraction, and we also published the statement from Skyscope, uh, Skycope in its entirety right? And there is some ambiguity in their, in their statement as well. There, there is one of their radars in service in Moscow. Okay. It's there. They don't know how it got there. This is their statement, right? They don't know how it got there. It was trafficked there. There was a shell buyer. Uh, It was diverted. Uh, These things happen. Uh, Western components are constantly showing up in Russian weapon systems you know my own native land switzerland is one of the worst offenders their equipment their their chips their high tech dual purpose items are showing up without even the labels scratched off them so it appears and i'm willing to give skycope the benefit of a doubt it appears that one of their systems is there being reverse engineered used without their permissions we'll just we'll just let that stand but uh, it was important to publish their side of the story. That being said, uh, if you are still dealing with Russia in a major economic way, I'm going to call you out. Okay, I'm I'm going to call you out. And uh, good on Sky Skyco for getting ahead of it. But I would say this: you got to tighten up your distribution network a little bit, right? If your gear's showing up in the heart. On the home planet of the evil empire, you got to tighten up your gear a little bit. But wanted to lead with that tonight. And uh, mistakes have been made, and people's careers have been ruined. So we will <laughs> we will go forward with that. I think. Probably best to research before you post. Yeah, absolutely. But it came from uh, several places, and I saw the photograph with their equipment bolted to the roof. So. You know, if I got mud sucked by a Photoshop, well, that's okay. But uh, I'm still saying we
3: have them at Gloucester Airport. We have them next to GCHQ. We have them on Heathrow. Yeah, they're they're everywhere. There's the yeah. They could have. They wouldn't have been directly sold to the Russians.
2: Absolutely. There's you know, and that's that's the way this this tech gets to where it's supposed to go. Nobody has a better uh, blind buying uh, arm than iran right uh you know i i have worked in counter proliferation uh you know i i have dissected the networks i have you know and this was uh you know a paid gig with the u.s government so you know i i I can appreciate the spot that they're in but good on them you know we put the put up their statement and give them a chance to get in front of this and uh, god bless them and uh I hope they make good stuff, and I hope it winds, it winds up in the right hands.
4: you think they're doing the right thing?
2: No, you know, I think they are doing the right thing, you know, in, in hindsight. But, you know, they they had a chance to get in front of this. You know, they weren't previously explaining why one of their, you know, anti-drone radars was in Moscow. Now, Now they've had an opportunity to explain it. I put up their statement. At face value I'm not gonna you know I'm, I'm not gonna dive on that grenade for them and say well that settles it that's uh, that's something that they can research and you know we can all discover it's necessary to discover how that piece of equipment got there you know I think if I own that company I'd want to know how it did
5: we already do have a hand and we'll get to that hand as soon as we possibly can With that said Robin it's good to be with you this evening Chuck it's good to be with you again Thursday night. This has become a regular appointed for the last couple of months now. So, uh, thanks for thanks for having us. And i uh, really looking forward to what you have to say. It's day 630. So, of the three day war, Putin's at 21,000% of his time budget. I like to call that out. Uh, that's that's a pretty interesting metric <laughs> 21,000% of, of, of schedule. So, with that said, Chuck, again, good to be with you. And uh, thanks for being here for another uh, session of bullet points
2: absolutely my pleasure and robin i didn't know about the nyu thing and i can tell you a friend of mine was this was 10 million years ago was getting his mfa in screenwriting at nyu which is probably the best school in the nation bar none for getting that and i actually used to drop into his classes which was a pretty pretty cool thing but nyu is quite a school
0: yeah, it sure. is. I was, I was over on the dark side in the law school, but yeah, the, the that program is amazing.
2: <laughs> that is, that's the dark side, absolutely. But it is really the best. It's an incredible, in, incredible program. So tonight we have uh, we have good news, we have uh, bad news, and we have uh, conflicting stories, and we'll try to get through uh, all of that uh, tonight and uh, field some questions. I, you know what? As I, I get up here, the only thing I don't have is the order of the maps in the nest. So we can go to what Robin, whatever one you tell us. I do have them uh, up on one of my cool guy screens here, so I can go anywhere you want us to.
0: I am going to defer to Michael because, as I said to him, I, you know, I I love bullet points, but it's way above my head as far as really following. So I'm going to let you and Michael uh, uh, direct traffic here. Sure thing. So
5: uh, I'll note the order real quick. Um, the, the first one in the nest is the Kupiansk access from twelve ten UTC. Is that where you'd like to start, Chuck, or we can? That, uh,
2: oh, oh, that's that's perfect. And and uh, coincidentally, it's it's the one that's ap- absolutely in in front of me right now. Coincidentally, so Kupiansk, of course, is the one of the northernmost uh, battle spaces uh, in the east. Uh, give you an idea of the, uh, weather up there, temperatures in the forties, getting down in the thirties and, uh, maybe getting down into the twenties, uh, next week. This is of course in Fahrenheit, uh, because we're all, uh, temperature, uh, uh temperature, uh, crossed here, non, non, uh, metric, but that's, uh, you know, that's two and three degrees centigrade, kind of cold. Just about at the most miserable weather a soldier can be out in is when it is really cold, but it's not snowing. So that is uh, is pretty bad. Just south that's of that's really
3: of, confusing because nobody else apart from the USA uses Fahrenheit. Yeah,
2: you're, you're um, right. We Jay, we Jay,
3: we ask
0: please, please to hold your questions till after Chuck presents. He's got a lot of stuff to uh, get through, and we're not going to get anywhere if we. Uh, you okay, know, that's okay. okay. Thank
2: you. Sorry, Chuck. So, yeah, absolutely. So uh, what's going on just south of the Kupiansk uh, map around Satove, which is, uh, it's in that gap between uh, my Kremena tactical map and Kupiansk. There is about a five mile long front that Russia is pushing uh, attempting to push west on, they are really paying for every hundred meters that they try to cross. The drone videos that that you see uh, pretty much some sum up what a day is like for a Russian soldier. They are trying to push forward uh, armored elements that are about platoon or company sized. Right, you know we're talking. Uh, you know, platoon is about 30 or, or 40 infantry guys, uh, vehicles to hold them. Each Russian armored fighting vehicle can hold about eight guys or so. Uh, some of them can hold 10 that's including crew. Uh, these things are extremely cramped inside. It's not like a Bradley. It's practically, it's about half the size of a Bradley in the interior is about the size of a vw uh, micro bus but lower although they're called armored fighting vehicles they're not heavily armored a crew serve machine gun will rip through both sides of them so consequently in almost every situation russian soldiers ride on top of the vehicle uh, they do that because if they they have some chance of seeing a fpv drone as it approaches Although sitting on top of a moving armored vehicle, you really can't hear very much. And especially if the drone is approaching from behind, which they normally do, they will do some frontal attacks as well, but definitely uh a- attacking from the stern. In Kupiansk, uh, if you were looking at that map, 12 1215 UTC, couple of uh couple of points. Uh, Ivanivka, which is uh, to the east of Kupiansk, and Sinkivka, these are the places that, that Russia is hitting. Uh, another town, uh, Petroprivka, which is just uh, to the east of, of Kupiansk, pretty much the first highway exit as you are heading east on the h twenty six. Russia has made a number of round-trip attacks against that point as well. Again, Russia is, is, is facing, it's Russia that's learning that large-scale armored maneuver warfare, combined arms warfare, it hasn't found the place it's going to end up in the 21st century. They are up against both Ukrainian drones, drone-adjusted artillery, mines, anti-tank guided missiles. What they're up against is uh, is a defensive capability and uh, defensive potentials that Ukraine has that no other army in history has really had to face. And so Russia is really paying the freight because they are trying to do something that would have worked in 1990. It might have worked in 2010, but it isn't totally working Totally agree with each other. Totally agree. Yep, yeah, it just it isn't working now. So this has been sort of this is the way uh, Kupiansk has gone. Not a whole lot has changed here in the in the last couple last couple weeks. Uh, there was a Ukrainian uh, a column ambushed about a week ago that was uh, west of petropavlivka six or eight. Uh, Ukrainian armored vehicles were taken out, including a Leopard tank, and that simply shows uh, that traversing open space in this war is extremely costly. Right. Uh, so Kupiansk is is essentially holding, but I'm going to be reporting uh, tonight on a on a number of incremental Russian advances, but uh, before anyone uh, gets worried about them. The, these these advances are so costly. Russia is still fighting this. this they still have this tactical retardation. They have a, a brigade task group, but they do not employ it in the manner that it's supposed to be employed. Right? So you have companies and a multiple number of companies will make a battalion. Several battalions will make a brigade. So, You have, you know, 1,500, maybe 2,000 men. Instead of having them operate in multi-company groups, and, and again, instead of using those companies to converge on an objective on multiple axes, see which company gets the farthest, reinforce that axis of attack, and push forward, I mean, this, these, this is Tactics 101. It isn't even Tactics 101. This is high school AP tactics, right? It, it It's so fundamental. But the Russians don't do it. They don't do it. They feed one platoon, which is half a company, or one company into the furnace at a time. And it doesn't succeed. And it isn't working anywhere on the battle space. But that seems to be what they're doing, Robin.
5: Chuck the units that are up there are the uh, the guards motor rifle brigades is what we're showing on deep state there in the kupiatsk how do they as a, a unit in terms of just the quality compared to say we, we hear so much about the vaunted blue Berets of the vDV um, and we've heard about the barge unit and you've talked about those um, can you talk a little bit about the units that are they're that providing these uh, providing these advances uh, small advances and getting eaten up in Kupiansk?
2: Yeah, if you're, if you're in a Guards Motor Rifle Division, you, you are supposedly uh, in the top rank of the Russian military. There isn't a real analog in, in Western Armed Forces, but a Guards unit is uh, it's specially selected. It's an honorific that is given to only uh, the most storied and capable Russian units. It isn't exactly like the presidential unit citation. And those veterans listening know, you know, it's pretty hard to be in a unit that gets a presidential unit citation. I, I don't have one on my ribbon rack. So, uh, at, but it's at that level. So these are troops that should, that should be capable. There, there's a problem here. And Russian commanders do not seem willing to conduct offensive action that is larger than this sort of company or low multiple company efforts. I don't know if they're, if, you know, their command bandwidth is not sufficient to, to, you know, order these units uh, correctly in the field. I don't know if, if Russia is finally discovering after, hundreds of years of their, of their military ethos, their military environment is I am your officer. I will tell you where to go, when to go there and what to do when you get there. And when you get there, you wait for further instructions. That is the way the Russian armed forces have run since, since the time of the czars. I think they may be discovering that that doesn't work anymore it stifles initiative it it, they do not delegate tactical authority so they're not there to exploit anything good that happens on the battlefield waiting for instructions even in the span of a couple of minutes and the whole engagement can turn in a couple of minutes
5: yeah and the other thing that kind of comes to mind with that you're right the smaller company levels but you know i think one of the big things that we don't really talk about it enough. It's just the, the, the ability of the Ukrainians to disperse their forces and then at the right time combine them for the attack. I think that's what we saw so much in the area around Kharkiv and the lineman offensive is that they were dispersed and then all of a sudden they came together and gave that hammer blow. I think that what you're talking about too kind of lends itself that the Russians just aren't able to have that nimbleness where it's, it's hard to concentrate forces as we've seen. The Ukrainians have eaten the Russians lunch with some of those river crossings last year where they were combined and that they, they haven't maybe been able to figure that out that part where they have those companies that come together for those attack groups. Have you seen any indications that they have been nimble, been able to bring together concentrations like unseen? Like, it just seems like they haven't really. That.
2: Yeah. You know, and, and uh, coincidentally, Uh, We brought up that ambush that happened to the Ukrainian forces uh, east of uh, Petropavlivka. That just screamed ambush to me. And it wasn't necessarily a a, uh, two equivalent forces meeting. It sounded to me and the Ukrainian casualties and uh, vehicle casualties and personnel casualties it sounded to me like an anti-tank guided missile ambush. And you could conduct that sort of ambush with two squads of, uh, of uh, special operations forces, or even two, two squads of, uh, of anti-tank guided missileers who knew what they were doing. So that stood out that Russian success stood out because in order to have, uh, suffered that, that sort of defeat, Ukraine had to be surprised on the battlefield. So Russia hasn't been able to surprise Ukraine anywhere. Their, their movements are observed, you know, they're watched from orbit. They're watched from, uh, longer endurance UAVs. Ukraine does not lose track of opponents, so this this really screamed to me that this was a small unit ambush and uh and it it succeeded and whenever you're in sort of an asymmetrical fight right and ukraine still is just around Kupiansk, there are about five times as many russians as there are ukrainian defenders and every time you're in an asymmetrical fight whether it's a guerrilla war whether you are a terrorist organization or whether you're fighting a conventional battle against a vastly superior enemy, you are always going to want to have your forces dispersed and then come together at the point of attack. And generally you want to disperse them after that as well, because you can imagine the situation where here comes those normal two companies of Russians, you apply your forces and you meet them and uh defeat them and when the russians try to strike back at you in your the positions that they know you were in because you were just fighting them you have dispersed so when that artillery barrage comes crashing in to the places you were just shooting from you're nowhere around and that's what's going on up in kupiansk as well the russians are having a lot of trouble trying to take uh And if you look closely at the map, you will see those bands of forest. And those are a place of refuge and cover for the Ukrainian forces. So this is going to be another one of those sort of fights for the Russians. And here in Kupiansk, as as Ukraine enjoys in most places in this war, you can see that the, the, the Russian sort of mitten is coming in from the east. You can also see that Ukrainian forces around Kupiansk they have interior lines of communication, right? So if you are a, a, a Russian unit and you are at uh, Klusvika and you get ordered up to Sinkivka, you have got to go from 6 o'clock, you've got to go all the way around to 12 o'clock and then over like to 11 o'clock. You have to move farther and expose yourself to Ukrainian drones, Ukrainian uh, drone adjusted artillery, uh, Ukrainian missiles. Uh, so those are the factors, small as that is, interior lines, it, it improves Ukraine's fighting ability. And almost every place on this map, in every map we're going to talk about, Ukraine has interior lines.
5: Yeah. And you're right. I don't think that's a small thing, Chuck. And I think, thank you for pointing that out and the importance of it. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming to you from right outside Gettysburg and, you know, that battle, the interior lines, the union, that was, that, that made, that made the Union army, uh, on the, the, you know, the third of, of July. So, um, those little things can mean, mean quite a bit. Um, so, uh, with that said, um, Chuck, I didn't know if you wanted a response to that, and uh, then after that, we can uh, we've got a hand that wants to ask a question.
2: Yeah, we can take some hands, Michael. Whatever you want.
5: Sure thing. So, Marcus, go ahead. Hi, Chuck.
3: Do you remember- hey, Marcus. Thanks for coming up. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. Do you remember when Michael Kaufman and um, something Lee, Robert Lee? Um, no, wait, that's the that's the ba- that's the guy from the. Anyways. Uh, might have been Rob Lee. Did I say Robert Lee? Okay. Rob Lee. Okay. Anyways, these two guys are academic, military academics in the U.S., and they are part of a podcast called War on the Rocks, or um, they participate in that podcast. Anyways, at the start of this offensive, they went down and they brought back some general criticism, not criticisms, or like uh, points that need improvement, I guess, you know? I They were not exactly negative about the ukrainians it's just that they were saying here's the things that still need to be worked on and one thing they mentioned was greater than a battalion level mobile warfare right and that's exactly what you're saying the russians were struggling with right now and i'm wondering is that because drones now have created a situation where your enemy has omnipresent vision and electronic interceptions are such that unless you hand things around written on paper, they have a great chance of having a pretty damn good idea of where everything is. Oh, and satellites. So where things used to be and where they're going. (laughs) So have we hit a point where technology needs to reach a different situation for war maneuver warfare on that level to happen again? I was wondering what you thought about that.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I can generalize
3: uh,
2: out of the Ukraine battle space, but there are there are some unique things going on here in Ukraine, and some of these factors that the Ukrainian army has to labor under, uh, they're they're completely the fault of the West. If the United States Army were operating here, and uh, you know, in in Kupiansk, they would enjoy. Air superiority that extends uh, from the grass below your feet, literally up into outer space, right? So, prowling around at 40,000 feet are going to be uh, F 15s and F 18s on air superiority missions. Uh, from 10,000 feet down, they're going to be A 10s and Apaches and they're all going to be able to fly wherever they want to because not only is there uh, air-to-air superiority, air defense is absolutely dominant over, over the battle space. So Ukraine has to fight under situations that, you know, it, it, it doesn't have even air parity anywhere. In this last reporting period, Ukraine flew two close air support missions, the Russians flew 48. So that means Ukraine is having to sustain these hits from the Russian air force sort of daily, which means they cannot concentrate their forces. They have to be very adroit and cunning with their logistics and supply depots. They have to maintain multiple ground lines of communication There's another unique factor that both sides are working under here. It's an extremely dense mine warfare environment. There are tens of thousands of landmines in every one of these battle spaces laid by both sides. The other thing that both sides are coming to grips with, Ukraine came to this much faster than the Russians did. In fact, Ukraine can absolutely be credited with uh the application of first person drones but utilization mm-hmm. of air support and and reconnaissance so that the Ukrainian armed forces every rifle squad's got three or four drones that's not the same in the US army they they don't have that right uh operating for jsoc seal team 6 and uh, delta force yeah we had those absolutely we've had them for the last 15 years but very expensive very Gucci as Yehuda says. And the doctrine was not such that uh, regular leg infantry units or armored cavalry or, you know, regular infantry, they, they just haven't integrated those systems. A third thing that is going against both, both sides here is the open terrain crossing. It is absolute murder given what's going on, you know, with, with either Russian aircraft and attack attack aircraft and attack helicopters probing pretty much wherever they want to, not quite wherever they want to, because the Russian frontal aviation is also up against something that is unique. They're facing 25% of the world's Stinger missiles. So even their own close air support is diminished. Fourth thing, as you pointed out, This is probably the most sophisticated electronic warfare environment of any war that's ever been fought. And Ukraine has managed to penetrate, I would say, 85 to 90 percent of Russia's battlefield communications. That's a problem with Russian equipment as well. They don't have uh, adequate crypto equipped radios. Russian units are often just transmitting in the clear a lot of times on dime store kind of communications equipment their communications are often jammed there was a drone video the other day about a uh, it was a russian uh, dispatch rider literally on a motorcycle and uh, this guy literally has a satchel full of messages because no other communication methods are either available for the russians because they've been jammed or they don't want to say these things on the radio. So we're, you know, I'd say this a lot. We're, we're looking at the first 21st century war. And for every one of these technological innovations that Ukraine has thrown into the game, Russia is months behind in countering. So it makes combined arms maneuver warfare objectives that, the Russian army and the Soviet army before it could have easily been expected to just gobble up and knock off. They're really having to pay for it. The Russian army is facing threats that didn't exist 600 days ago, and they don't have a remedy for it. So that contributes to, I won't use the word that General Zaluzhny used, which was stalemate. I would say it it contributes to the sort of territorial stasis that we find here because it's very costly to either advance and it's even costly to hold on with what you've taken. But in the meantime, Russia just keeps pushing regardless of casualties, regardless of material losses, they just keep pushing and it is defeating them. Read an estimate today, 400,000 Russian dead in 600 days. It's unsustainable, right? It's unsustainable. Russia's not going to run out of warm bodies. They're, 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 they can ship guys to the front and just keep doing it. Latest Russian prisoner interview I read, the guy had two weeks of training. One week of just getting there and getting his gear, five days of training. You can't learn to be a soldier in five days. You can't. And you can't lose 400,000 people in six days and expect your army to rise to the occasion because they're being squandered and they know it. And we know that from history. You cannot lead soldiers from defeat to defeat to defeat and not expect them eventually to turn on you. And that's going to happen here too.
5: Yeah, and Chuck, I'm so glad you brought up the motorcycle messenger. Um, I don't know, there was some really good video of uh, some inexpensive drones, speaking of that innovation, taking out those messengers that have come out over the course of the last day or so. So I didn't know if you've had a chance to, to, to see some of that, but it looks like those are those are pretty ineffective just based upon some counters that the, the Ukrainians have had. Have, have you had a chance to look at some of the, some of the footage of those?
2: Now, you know, it, actually the only one I saw was a, uh, a Russian dispatch rider and he got chased down by this, by this drone. But you know, what that tells me is, you know, they're having to l- use dispatch riders, which is, isn't really that unusual, but you've got that dispatch rider riding down a road perpendicular, uh, to the zero line in broad daylight and, you know, when he put those envelopes in his satchel and started his motorcycle up, man, I I would have said aloha, my friend, because you are not going to make it to wherever you're going.
5: Absolutely. Chuck and Robin, I um, know we've got a, a couple more hands, and then if we want to, uh, we can go to a couple of hands. We'll start. We've got Marcus, followed by ATV, and then um, after uh, Koopy Ants, maybe go to uh, Velka Nova Silka. So uh, Marcus, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I was just gonna say
3: great answer by Chuck, as always. I mean, come on. You heard your you heard your pre-show praise. You've earned it. <laughs>
1: oh, you guys, man. Thank you.
3: <laughs>
2: You're killing me here. <laughs> I don't get that. Listen, it doesn't work that way in my house, let
3: me tell you. I, I'm a I, legend in my own living room. I'm also married. <laughs> so what I was gonna say is I guess this means given that it's a confluence of both the mines and the uh the air cover situation, and I I agree. I think, um, to be fair about Ad- Adivka, the Russians don't have the Air Force or they don't have access to the Air Force they had two years ago. <laughs> so they, they're obviously very risk adverse with their, their aircraft now because, like you said, the <laughs> a quarter of the world's stingers belong to Ukraine. And uh, those ships, you know, even even the heavily armored ones still, still go down in a ball of flame. So even when the Ukrainians have F-16s, we could give them 300, but that's not going to solve the minefields. So they're going to have to be innovative, I guess, in in how they prosecute this war. But um, it's pretty sobering, I'll tell you that. I, I don't know what's going to. I think obviously the other the other amazing thing is that you were talking about ambushing with an RPG with uh, RPGs with with um, man pads. But really, you actually can amb- ambush with I don't know 20. FPV drones. Because unless you're ambushing main battle tanks, an FPV drone will go through an armored personnel carrier. That's not a problem. You just need to stop it from running and then it's dead because you will have man pads. And every squad has has, uh, drone operators that can FPV a tank or an APC, right? So it's a pretty terrifying environment (laughs) when your average infantry squad can knock out almost anything from behind a building with a tiny little drone that you can't stop until it gets close enough that it's effectively already hit you. Yeah, it's pretty crazy.
2: Yeah, that is that that's something that it, you know, that, and again we're 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 seeing this is this is maybe twice the tactical revolution that the Spanish Civil War was. And that was the that was the first fascist conflict. Uh, where Germany was able to test out Blitzkrieg and, you know, it goes over beyond Blitzkrieg. It was, it was, the, uh, it was integrating uh, tactical air power and combined arms ground uh, warfare. And, you know, although uh, the Allies had military thinkers who were, you know, writing about the potential of, of exactly that, the Germans put it into practice and I've, you know, and I mentioned this before. I mean, I, I, you know, in a, in a previous life, I, you know, I look, I did stuff for DARPA. You know, I, I was in a company that we, we were looking forward to innovations like that, but the United States army had all the same information that the Ukrainian forces had, but you, you squeeze the mightiest brains in the U S defense industry And nobody said, look, if you put a cluster bomb on a $1,000 camera drone, we can fly it right into a tank. And even if that good idea had come up, the powers that be would have just, you know, they resisted. I I will tell you, here are some of the things the U.S. military has resisted. The machine gun, the radio, uh, aircraft dropping bombs, before that, they said no to the Gatling gun. The, these, are, these are all the things that, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the intellectual inertia that has to be overcome for any great change in tactics. Ukraine didn't have the luxury of saying no, right? They faced, they started this war out with their air force in shambles, right? They had no air force. So to fill the gap in, You know, some bright young mind said, look, if if you just give me an RPG warhead, you know, which costs what, I don't know, thirty dollars. And I I literally duct tape this thing to the bottom of this drone. I removed the safety cap and we're gonna fly it into a tank. And then Ukraine was able to look at that small sample size and said, That worked, let's go with it. And that isn't the only innovation, right? They started out with naval drones. There were some, some remote-controlled explosive motorboats in World War II that the, that the Germans had. They, they didn't really work all that well. If it was the U.S. Navy, they would and somebody said, I, I want to do this basically at this, uh, you know, it's this powered surfboard. I'm going to put 300 pounds of C4 in it. Somebody at the Navy Department would have said, look, the Germans tried that. It didn't work. Well, we know that it does work and we know it because the Western Black Sea is now a non-permissive environment for the Russian Navy. So Ukraine, because it had to, it embraced these long shot technologies, but they have changed warfare fundamentally, not just on the ground, but every admiral in the world is looking what happened to the Russian Navy in the black sea and believe me they're taking notice they're taking notice because i'm not sure the u.s navy would be faring any better in the western black sea fighting this asymmetrical unconventional warfare and that is you know there's still an underdog in this fight and it's ukraine and unfortunately they're an underdog because the u.s seems to lack the political will to give Ukraine what it needs to stand toe to toe. So we will, uh, you know, we'll dig into this. You take all the burdens that Ukraine has to try to function under, all of the remarkable antidotes that they have come up with, and and you've really got to take your hat off to them. And again, you know, we're going to have some bad news here tonight on the show. Some good news, some bad news. But I'm telling you what, the Russian army, the way it is now, they can't win this war. They're, they're not going to win it. It's going on for a while, but you can see the way the trend is going. They're not going to win it.
5: Totally agree on all those points, and the political will and, and the, the, the trajectory of this, uh, for sure. So we've got a couple more hands and then we'll move over. So let's go to um, Alpha Tango Victor. Go ahead.
6: Thank you, Chuck, for that incredibly cogent synopsis of the issues. It's been something that bothered me a while. i like, and been fantastic seeing these Ukrainian defenses and these Ukrainian, um, yeah, of Dika, you know, case in point. Um, but then it makes me think, how does Ukraine move forward, right? What What is the secret sauce? Um, and is it is it is it really deception? And if it is deception, then where does that deception possibly happen if you're if you're comfortable sharing at all um you know possibly with the idea that Kherson might be part of that deception just the way that Kherson was the first time with kharkiv so interested in your thoughts and on how and possibly where if if you if you're comfortable sharing thank you
2: yeah that's uh and, and and someone brought this up just a while ago and i i talked around it but it isn't just Russia that seems to be having trouble with larger scale operations. And I think the reluctance of both sides to throw those bigger dice is what happens if if your large scale attack doesn't work. Right. I think this is troubling the Russians much more than the Ukrainians, but as Russian commanders have to worry about Uh, For example, Vuladar 1 and 2. That was the last time they threw brigade-level tactical elements into the fight. Vuladar 1, in the course of 12 hours of fighting, 6 hours on 2 days, they lost 40 main battle tanks and uh, somewhere between 120 and 150 infantry fighting vehicles. They got clocked. They got clocked. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was another attack on Vuladar. They wound up losing 75 or 80 armored vehicles, of which 20 were main battle tanks. That just isn't working. But here's something that also isn't working. Normally, if you have air power, if you have artillery parity, if you have adequate air defense to clamp over the battlefield, Ukraine might have been uh, expected to follow up on both of those Russian defeats. You know, you blunt an attack and you crush the attacking force and you have a three, four, five hour window to shove it back down the enemy's throat, right? Push them back in disarray and roll after them. Ukraine couldn't do it. And although, you know, I was happy to report on Ukraine's success privately, hey, I, you know, it was a missed opportunity. So that is the same thing that is holding Russia back in a lot of places. I I really feel this is the case. We'll go to the Kremena map next, uh, where we have the most underachieving of all uh Russian forces that are operating to the south of Svatove. And unfortunately, we had some activity at Svatove that uh, we're going to be farther south from this. Uh, but again, this was a place where the Russians have five, six, seven to one uh superiority. They enjoy, you know, the point of attack. They inevitably outnumber Ukrainian defenders. But the mines, the open terrain, and Russia's compulsion to attack in broad daylight, it's costing them. And although they've made some advances here in the last couple of days, those, those advances are, are measured in hundreds of meters. And uh, it's just another example of, of a problem that, that Russia, they're not going to solve it in this war. You know, when this war is over, they're going to go back and they're going to be get, getting some new teachers at their war colleges, and they're going to be dissecting their defeat here. Uh, and, and that includes, you know, they, they didn't have answers for technological innovations that have come up. They thought they were equipped and they thought their doctrine was sufficient to allow them to operate in open terrain. They thought their air superiority was going to be sufficient uh, to prevent Ukraine from maneuvering up to the battle space. They thought that would be sufficient to to uh, decimate concentrating Ukrainian forces before they could get to the battle the zero line. They thought their own mine warfare capabilities, uh, especially defensive, you know, uh, defeating the enemy mines. The Russians thought. Their doctrine was sufficient. Their technology was sufficient, and all of these things have been proven wrong. Uh, and add the cherry on the top of this doo doo Sunday, and that is Russia will have to completely revamp its mobilization and its and its training, because they're already in this in this kill shot. They've already entered this training death loop. Putin may mobilize, uh, three or 400,000 more guys, but they, they won't arrive at the battlefield as combatants. They won't be sufficiently equipped. They're, they're egregiously under-trained and they're led by, by military nincompoops. And that's going to take decades for them to straighten out. So it's an, (laughs) you know, I, I, Unfortunately, I keep banging the same empty tub here. I I wish the Russians would listen sometimes, but I'm happy to point these things out because they are not going to be remedied. Not in a couple of months, not in a couple of years, and maybe not in a couple of decades. Yep.
5: Absolutely. My apologies. I, th- I think I said Velca Nova Sica is the next map. Um, I just put Cremina map. Oh, that's
2: okay. Absolutely. I can just push a button and I get that
5: happening. Oh, no problem. I, I did just add the Cremina uh, map to the nest. So um, definitely, you know, we can uh, we can go to either Cremina or Velcro Nova, uh, Velcro Nova Sica okay, next. Um, it's totally up to you. We've got both of them ready for you. Um, Before that, though, I wanted to get to one more uh, hand, uh, and then we can go on to to the next map. Um, And the next hand is
7: G-Man. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, Good morning or good evening, Chuck. Hope you're well.
2: I am, brother. Good to hear you.
7: Yeah, that's great. Um, I've been reading a number of accounts um, from Ukrainian sources. Um, There's one who is described by the ISW as a Ukrainian reserve officer on Twitter. He's uh, Tataragami, maybe, underscore UA. And he seems to, when he writes about uh, the uh, Ardivka axis, he seems to be, um, maybe, I was going to say pessimistic but perhaps it's in his view realistic about um some of the mistakes that the Ukraine have made or rather you know where where the uh, Russians are sort of having somewhat more success. Um I'm just not sure whether what to make of him. And there's also another one um who the ISW referred to as a Ukrainian military observer because um, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, Constantin, Constantin um, uh, Mashevitz or something. I like guess I think it is. Um, and again, he's on Telegram as well. Um, he seems to have decent um, insights, but it's just hard to know. Um, uh, how accurate it is, you know, so I guess we have to wait and see, but just your thoughts on, on those, those guys. I'm not sure if you're, if you're aware of them or if you knew them, know of them. Thanks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've read uh, stuff from both those guys. Uh, there are always going to be, uh, you will always be able to sort out your commanders. There's always going to be, really great tactical leaders, there are going to be, uh, okay, tactical leaders. There's, there are going to be people who fight by the book, exactly by the book. And then there are going to be people who are not, uh, ever going to be in the top echelon of anything they do. And, uh, I have read, uh, reports from both those guys, what was alarming to me is, uh, some of the, some of the mistakes they were complaining about, uh, were very basic. Uh, so, and I think one of the things they were complaining about as well is if there is an incompetent commander or a, a, a commander that who, whose troops uh, have lost their confidence, in this guy they're they're not rapidly removed and uh there isn't a soldier anywhere in any war uh since the you know since troy who hasn't belly ached about their commanders but uh their mistakes have been made uh in evdivka by ukrainian forces i mean that's that's a finding of fact and we'll get to Avdivka here in, in a little bit. But I, I, I don't see these mistakes as being uh, crippling. Definitely, I, I see some non-optimal leadership. I see some non-optimal use, uh, use of troops, use of reinforcements, uh, non-optimal tactics, but I don't see anything egregious. I also think that Ukraine is going to create in the course of this war, a higher caliber of leader because they're going to go through the crucible of this war. And, uh, there is no greater Darwinian, uh, environment than, than war. And the good leaders will not only survive, but they will, they will come, come into command. And there is no one great man, right? Uh, Omar Bradley wasn't just a great general and a great soldier. He had a great staff. So we're still in that position, I think, in Ukraine, the war's six, they're in 600 days. And, you know, wars don't last 600 days. Wars last four and five years. Some wars last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Some wars last a hundred years. There are, you know, the hundred years war there, you know, there are long human conflicts but in general, most, most wars last between, you know, four and eight years. So Ukraine's own leadership is, is maturing, but we'll get to, uh, you know, we'll get to end and we'll, we'll talk about it there, but those points are well taken. And I think the, the, you know, what those commentators said, look, they had a reason to say it. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, they, they have an environment where they can point it out because no one needs to deal with incompetence.
5: Chuck, I think you're right. And we've said so many different tales of, of incompetence. If I could just respond uh, very quickly. Yeah, th- uh, very quickly, G-Man, and then we're going to move on.
7: Yeah, Chuck, it makes sense. I'm actually reading a, a book, Command by Al Murray, who's a British comedian, but also a historian. And, you know, I'm reminded that it took, um, I don't know, two years, and umpteen general British generals to win in North Africa at El Alamein. So that certainly bears out the um, the long war and you know many mistakes and many commanders uh, until you get the recipe for command. So thanks, and i
2: listen. No, spot on. I mean, it's you know there are there of course we we've all heard of a desk general, right? so a guy who serves in peacetime, he rises up, uh, finds some stars on his shoulders. All of a sudden, he's a flag officer. He's a general. He's an admiral. And uh, he doesn't know the first thing about leading. He doesn't, you know, his tactics are uh, getting an inside track uh, at the Pentagon, getting a corner office. And every, every nation that has gone through, every nation that's ever gone through a war has gone through this process of filtration of their of their battlefield commanders. There's no greater example of that than the American Civil War, where Lincoln was casting about for generals, and he kissed a lot of frogs before he kissed the prince that was uh, General Grant.
5: Absolutely. And I didn't have, a, thank you for that, G-Man. I did not have an Al Murray Pub Landlord reference on my um, bullet points bingo card tonight. So, thank you very much <laughs> for that. That was uh, you're the that man. was uh, <laughs> And yeah, I, and he's a very learned person, very good, very talented comedian. If you've never heard of uh, Al Murray. So, with that, uh, that's an awkward uh, link over to uh, Kermina. If you're okay, Chuck, let's Let's go ahead and go to Kermina, the first. Uh, yeah. stay, in, uh, stay in the Luhansk, uh, uh, Kharkiv area in the east. Yeah.
2: So, uh, Kermina, of course, is uh, north of Bakhmut. And uh, south of uh, Kupiansk, this is a battle line that hasn't changed very much. Although uh, the Russians have actually made made some gains here in the last couple of weeks, they are marginal. And uh, if you look at the very top of the top of the map, uh, Novodeyan, and then you can go south and see the attack on Nevsky. Nova Dian, uh, you can't see it very well on this map, but it is, it is pretty much everything that anyone could possibly desire as a defensive position. There are several hills, and in front of them is the Zarebets River, and beyond them is open terrain. Agricultural fields uh, circumscribed by those bands of trees planted hundreds of years ago, uh, to purposes of soil conservation, uh, dealing with Novo Dan here, there is one road coming in. It's an O series highway, the one three zero five Oh five. That is the central axis on which Russian forces are attacking. And I want you to consider yourself one of those hapless Nuggets of cannon food, traveling down the 13505. You're looking across open terrain. You can see the river in front of you, and beyond that, you can see the hill, and you can see dozens and dozens of muzzle flashes. And uh, 20 millimeter cannon shells are flying in at you. Drones are buzzing you, and artillery is crashing all around you. And they hit the front vehicle and then they hit the back vehicle and you decide to bail out of your uh, APV because this is really looking bad. And then the cluster moms come down on you. And I've just described your basic Russian attack. Uh, And I'll also add this. This was the attack that they pulled yesterday morning. They pulled it Tuesday morning. They pulled it Monday morning. They pulled it Sunday morning. If you're surprised that it didn't work, join the club. Why the Russians are compelled to attack high ground is, is a bit amazing. To even attack under any of these circumstances is you know, highly ill-advised. So again, we're looking at a situation where politicians, Russian politicians, are mandating Russian commanders in sectors, you send me reports telling me that you are attacking on all fronts and by God, you better report one attack a day. It's not working. It just isn't working. In the Kremena area of operations, the Russians have at least five to one superiority. At least. They have staged a slight success advancing towards Torsky, which is at the bottom there of the Zarebets uh, Reservoir, they've advanced maybe a couple of hundred meters, but they have never set foot in Torsky, and they have been trying for months. Looking south in the Sarabriansk forestry, it doesn't matter what Russia pours into that forest. The point of contact in the re- reduced visibility of a under a forest canopy it's always going to be rifle squad on rifle squad those are groping together it doesn't matter if there's a division behind you your point of contact in a forest engagement is always going to be one rifle squad perhaps just one fire team within the rifle squad and under those conditions in this war in a forested area ukraine always dominates always And that comes down to absolute basic fundamentals. Ukrainian rifle squads are better trained than Russian rifle squads. They're, for the most part, they're better equipped. They have better sensors, thermal night vision. Uh, They are, their morale is better because they are rested and rotated in and out of their positions. They fight better. Uh, They're capable of interrupting operability so it's russia may come in contact with one ukrainian rifle squad but that rifle squad's never going to be alone three rifle squads in a platoon they are fighting to doctrine one one rifle one rifle squad in contact the other two are going to maneuver against the point of contact so you fight me i'm grappling with you and my two buddies they move to encircle you from the rear and that's what's been going on here. So, you know, I, I always approach this as a small unit guy. And, you know, there, there are, of course, it's, this is a much bigger war with larger maneuver elements and everything else. But the pointy end of every war, whether it's the Spartans, whether it's, it's, it, it, it's the Battle of Troy, it, the Roman phalanxes, it comes down to that individual small tactical element and sociology has taught us that that is basically the platoon. It's the 30 guys, you know, well, right. Those three rifle squads, the guys, you all guy, you know, all their faces, you know, all their hometown hometowns, they become like your tribe and As long as Ukraine has the advantage over, let's look at what's on the other side of the zero line. Guy shows up with two weeks of military training, one week, five days with a rifle he hasn't uh, sighted in. He doesn't have adequate armor. He doesn't have an adequate helmet. He doesn't have night vision goggles. He's got a rusty, trusty AK. He doesn't have any... uh, You know, it doesn't have any advanced sighting on it. Uh, You're passing through. The the Russian platoons are under so much stress. There may have been 30 guys when this unit went into contact, but now there's six. Now Now there's 10 and 20 new guys who, just like the guy who pulls out the picture of his girlfriend in the World War II movie, they are so untrained. They don't know incoming from outgoing, and they don't last five days. They don't last five days. And their commanders have no, they don't measure success or failure by the number of people they kill every day. So that's why, that's why the Kremena battle space has stayed essentially as it has been for months. And there are some crack Russian units here. And they're, you know, they're they're not living up to their advanced billing. I mean, we've got uh, you know, there's the thirty fifth guards uh motor rifle brigade, you know, f- other guards armor divisions, these these are these are people who are supposed to be the best that the Russian army has. And it's just not working out here.
5: Yeah. And Chuck, you, you stole my question from me with your comments. Cause I was looking at that same area. Not only is it the 35th, but also you've got a VD. that's like the 331st airborne regiment as well. So you've got some of those blue berets there. And so not only does it look like they're you know, five to one advantage, but it looks like the, these are the best of the best, at least what the Russians have to offer. Um, what are you seeing anything out of the airborns there? Uh, and looks like the airborne's are directly facing what you're talking about in terms of Torski. Um, and those units just fascinate me given that, you know, the, the mutiny that they had about three months ago. But um, have you seen anything specific to uh, the airborne units there?
2: Well, you know, they're not, nothing beyond their sort of underachievement. And, you know, in every nation, you know, you've, you've got paratroopers, right? You've got the 101st Airborne, you got the 82nd Airborne. And you teach these guys to jump out of an airplane. You give them a funny hat. And even though there are, it's very unlikely that, it, that in the next 30 years, anyone is going to drop a division of paratroopers in anywhere in a in a massive combat jump. It's definitely a plus that you've got guys who are trained that you can throw out of airplanes and they can all, you know, they can land in places where there are no airfields that so look, that's definitely a plus. But one of the big reasons you have airborne forces is their morale is high. Their esprit de corps is high. And that always transfers into h- higher combat effectiveness. These, the VDV forces here in Kermena have been getting punched in the face for the last 10 months, you know, and a year ago they were getting surrounded in Liman and driven back across the Zarebets river. And I know I beat the morale drum a lot, but it matters, right? It matters. It translates directly into combat effectiveness. And There's a reason why so many of these Russian attacks, platoon or company sized force, force uh, dispositions inadequate to reach and hold the objectives they're given attacking over the same ground, the same time of day down the exact same road. You, you just can't expect soldiers to rise to this occasion, you know, they're not going to give it their all because they know they're being badly used, and we're we're seeing that here. This is this is the most underachieving uh, section of of uh, of Russia's effort in in Ukraine, and it has been that way, despite every advantage that Russia enjoys, including direct logistics from Russia itself. Right, that doesn't have to go through crimea doesn't have to go across the land bridge in the south of ukraine direct direct shot um and they're not just they're, they're just not getting anywhere and they're getting yeah. worn down and that's the,
5: that's all good things definitely want them to underachieve you want them to get worn down for sure um chuck if you're okay with it we've got a couple of hands um so we have uh, For Every Child and then followed, we've got Bearded. So For Every Child, you've got the first uh, question to check uh, on this uh, new map, the Crimea uh, map. So uh, please go ahead and ask your uh, question to Chuck. I'm so sorry, I raised my hand before this map came up and Chuck, um, uh, I uh, I just had a quick question. My first contact with, with the U- Ukraine uh, uh, was uh just shortly before Russia crossed the border. And the first images I saw were of uh, uh, women uh, making Molotov cocktails. In my memory, I don't recall any success like this that began with Molotov cocktails, but I'm not a military historian. Do you recall anything different?
2: Well, it, it definitely showed the, the commitment of the Ukrainian people Um, and Ukraine was smart enough to make sure we in the West saw that, you know, so that image of women making Molotov cocktails, everything resonates in the information space, and perceptions, they, you know, there is reality, and there is the perception of what's going on, right? One, One thing that I, I haven't seen in my, in my military experience a nation that was so badly losing a war, turning it around, and they didn't turn it around all that quickly, but within six months, uh, they were turning things around. Remember, it, they were driven to the peace table, right? They were, they were forced to negotiate in the opening weeks of this war but then the the true nature of the russian army started to appear right the the russian thrust at kiev was not just broken off right not just not just beaten back but those forces were sent reeling back into belarus they got their butts kicked and there was a twenty-mile-long yard sale of burning vehicles behind them. They got driven out of Sumy. They got driven out of Kharkiv. Uh, it turns out, and I, you know, I, I hate the term "paper tiger." I prefer "brittle opponent." They 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 couldn't. They they found that they were they were being you know, and and Ukraine so quickly realized they didn't have the forces. They didn't have the, the resources to meet these Russian forces head to head. They didn't have divisions to throw against Russian divisions. They immediately pivoted to asymmetrical warfare and they, where they could hit, they, they chose to strike at lines of communication and supply to strike at headquarters elements They did everything that an asymmetrical opponent needs to do. And then when, when they had started to push the Russian adversary back as they did in, in the Kiev uh, salient, once the Russians started to break, they just stayed on them and, and pushed them back. Everything about this war is still asymmetrical, right? Ukraine, there's almost no place on the battlefield that Ukraine outnumbers their adversaries. That that's pretty sobering. There is no place on this battlefield where Ukraine enjoys uh, dominance in artillery dominance. That's sobering. There's no place where they have air superiority. There's no place where they have air defense dominance. Yet they're still in the fight, and. In many of these battle locations, especially Bakhmut, they, they are happy to oblige Russia's compulsion to take Bakhmut. So even though Bakhmut is a place of zero tactical importance, they take advantage of, of defeating Russia there because Russia is defeating itself. And we'll get to Bakhmut here next the kremena battle space is uh, is is it's it's analogous to the Bakhmut battle space there's just a you know the fact that the russians cannot get to torsky right at, which is at the bottom of the zarebets reservoir they would dearly like to take back liman and and we're only talking about 6 7 kilometers they're not going to be able to do it. despite the fact they've got guards units, airborne units. They've got some of their highest caliber, most competent forces here. And they, and they, and they can't do it. So, you know, people say, well, I'm disappointed with what happened this summer with the offensive. Well, let, let's talk about the Russian offensive. Uh, you know, the, the, they are making some gains, but, they are of incredible, they're, they're paying incredible prices to do it. So, every one of these places, I've, I've, I'm pretty much repeating the same thing. Russia is doing this the hard way, and Ukraine is obliging them. You want to attack uh, against a, you know, Novo Dayan, you want to you want to cross a river, you want to cross five kilometers of open terrain, cross a river and fight me on a hilltop, then we're going to do it. We'll do it all day. So it's a, it's an amazing (laughs) set of circumstances here.
0: Robin. Yeah, Chuck. um, Since we're talking more on a macro level, which is where I can cope better. I, um, I read an article today where Um, um, An anonymous commentator, so I I don't have a name, was talking about he sees a possibility of Russia, uh, of Putin demanding um, some kind of gains ahead of his announcement that he's running for like the 500th time as president of Russia again. Um, My question is, um, do you think that Russia is, do you think it would be possible for them to focus on one area and actually get a significant win for him in the next month or so. This is what they were talking about.
2: Yeah, I think, I I think that's possible. Uh, I really do. If, if Russia were to concentrate uh, its resources uh, and, you know, coincidentally, the next map of Divka, which seems to be the place that they're likely to do it, it it's possible. Uh, I, I agree with those guys, or, uh, ladies and gentlemen. They're absolutely completely. Putin needs a win. Uh, he needs a win. Even though I'm predicting he's going to win the election with 97.9% of the vote, uh, the Russian people, uh, they might not want to buy what he's selling, which is going to be what? A war that uh he he doesn't seem to be winning there's that magic there, there's a the re- reflexivity in the word stalemate right and the west lowers its eyebrows and looks at ukraine and goes tut, "Tut, stalemate let's just let's just change the polarity on that somebody started this war as a goddamn superpower and stalemate means they can't win it either Right? You, 600 days ago, Ukraine was a damsel in distress. And right now, it's got its thumbs in the eye sockets of the bear. So Putin really, really needs a victory. And his military is performing like that. The Kremlin is putting the spurs to these Russian commanders, they are making these ill advised attacks. Uh, they are, they are squandering uh, men like they're never going to run out of trained soldiers. Surprise, surprise, they've already run out of trained soldiers. But the one place that I think Russia could actually do something is in Avdivka. And we'll, we'll talk about that next. And we'll even talk about what, what would the consequences be if Avdivka, could, if Avdivka were to fall. And we'll we'll go through that and see. And uh, just a hint, uh, it might not be the end of the war.
5: No, I mean, Chuck, you've said that you this is going to go on for at least three years. So uh, you know, we're 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 early on. And by comparison, where we are with this war, we're you know compared to like the World War II timescale, we're you know you know, not even in you know too far in the nineteen forty one not even U.S. involvement or, or even Operation Barbarossa. So if if we're going by that time, we're, we're definitely early days. And the the thing that I'd like to look at is like when you were talking about before the, the 400,000 casualties that the Russians have, have submitted. Um, you know, if, if you were to take that ratio of, of losses to the United States, we're about two and a quarter times the population. We're talking over 900,000 casualties for a United States. I mean, that's, that I'd like to put that into you know, comparison in terms of uh, the population size. I mean, that, that is just mind boggling that we're this early in as, as you know, we've got a few more years to go and they've already burned through a huge amount of man and material. Um, and, and I think that's a good setup for you. And I do have the Avdika map uh, first in the nest for you as well.
2: Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're looking at Russia mining this resource and it's actually a limited resource. So you can look at the population of Russia and you, you know, you see a number in the tens of millions and you can draw, you know, you, you will draw an erroneous conclusion because what you're looking for are 18 to 30 year old men. And, you know, these are the same guys. In the first mobilization, uh, Putin grabbed 300,000 uh, military aged men. 450,000 fled the country. So that makes the pool a little shallower. Uh, they are actively recruiting felons, uh, violent criminals. Uh, there are Russian units where the average age is 45. You know, there's a there, there's a problem. There's a lot of things a 30 year old guy can do that a 45 year old guy can't. Uh, substance abuse is rampant in in Russian forces. Uh, it, it it you know it it isn't sustainable here. And the biggest thing that's wrong, and we talked about that, is that training death loop, right? It it's not just even a question of finding appropriate people to bring into the Russian forces. The problem is that they're they're not being trained. Right. And, and so the easiest thing to do, right. You think is you get a guy and you teach him how to put a bayonet on a rifle and you send him out there. That's good enough. Okay. Well, that's great. But who, how are you going to replace the air defense guys, the artillery guys, the electronic warfare guys, uh, the people who service the airplanes, um Russia is already we've seen it just it in, in sort of the intra war areas they're they're already decimating their support arms combing through logistical units uh electronic warfare units support units of all kinds squeezing out every available person to send to the front therefore their logistics are going to shit their support activities are are going to hell uh Russia is already having to remove strategic forces, right? Uh, from, from locations in the Baltic Sea, from the Far East. Uh, the only units and the only manpower that Russia has been circumspect with is the Air Force. Because if the Air Force is destroyed, it's going to have an immediate effect on Russia's ability to project power, period. Period. And even though China is still supplying dual-use, high-tech items to Russia, don't make any mistake. China doesn't want to share a co-prosperity arrangement in Asia. They don't have any interest in playing second uh, fiddle to Russia. And actually, uh, you know, they don't want anything else except, look, they'd love a broken-up, reduced Russia who simply buys their stuff. That's all they care about. So uh, it's, there's a lot of trouble here for the Russians. But let's, let's, uh, let's get into uh, Kremena, which is a place where uh, Putin probably waits daily for, uh, not Kremena, but Avdivka, and Putin waits daily for good news here. And, Michael, if you stall for a second, I can get that map up. I put it in the wrong place.
5: Yeah, sure thing. And we've um, got that. Again, it's the first one up in the nest. This is from earlier today at 1420 UTC. And uh, Chuck's going to be talking about a a breakup of uh, about 18 against small-scale attacks around um, the uh, DECA. And so this has been a, a very hot area. And uh, the, over the course of the last month or so we've seen a, a huge amount of casualties and uh, the Ukrainians have uh, turned this into a bit of a killing field as far as the, the Russian uh, forces and a uh, disproportionate share of the casualties of Russians uh, that 400,000 I, I think I'm breaking- record record drawing has been from there. Yep. go ahead, Chuck. Chuck, yeah you're back with us. Have you on mute? Robin, do you hear Chuck?
0: No, I don't, Chuck. Uh, you look like you're muted. Um, uh, oh dear, he he just dropped. Okay, we're having it's 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 a it's a twittery evening. uh, Here he's he's coming back up. I hope we'll we'll get him up.
8: Uh, Oh, I never got to ask my question.
0: Well, at least he's coming back. Don't worry. Yeah, I saw you waving. Let's see. Hopefully, we'll get him back up. He's he should be here with us for a while. There we go. There we
2: go. Okay. Oh, there you, you, you are, Robin, you, you saved me from, uh, from Twitter oblivion. Well, <laughs> glad to do it. Glad to do it. Well, here, so here we are, uh, Avdivka. Uh, we have that, uh, dreaded red mitten, uh, they're reaching out, uh, to swallow Avdivka. I actually have to report, uh, some Russian gains here. Uh, principal sort of important gain uh septove which is to the north of avdivka at great cost russia has managed to reach the rail line uh is that really important uh if avdivka were supplied by rail it might be important but it is not uh reaching the rail right of way is basically just a uh I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's a ground feature that they have reached. Uh, but South of Septove, uh, there are two positions and it looks like that layer of the map didn't make it into this, but, uh, just to the, to the West of the two water features there, uh, there are two, uh, important, uh, features. There is the, the Coke plant, which is a major heavy-duty industrial facility uh, made out of uh, reinforced concrete that is multiple feet thick, uh, a position of great uh, strength, much like the Avstal plant in Mariupol. South of it, uh, there is a uh, slag heap, a giant uh, mound of the waste product of the coke plant, Uh, sort of a large, almost pyramidal, volcano-looking hill there. Uh, Russia is going to attempt uh, to engage uh, uh, Russian-Ukrainian forces in the coke plant. That is sort of uh, the, the fortress, the redoubt, the bastion that holds up the northern portions of the defense of Avdivka. If you look at that red mitten, uh, the thumb to the thumb to the south and the fingers there to the north, the important part of this map is the area between, of course, the fingers and the thumb and the ground lines of communication that come into Avdivka. So they're not marked on this map. I wouldn't mark them if I knew where they were, but what Ukraine has been able to do, there is not one or two or three major roads or, or routes that come into here. Uh, there are 20 or 30 of them. Their ground lines of communication and supply are diverse. They are dispersed. Uh, they don't use the same road every day. They have intermediate uh, supply depots. Uh, all of that to supply the Ukrainian forces that are fighting the fingers and the thumb. So we just talked about the coke plant being a a sort of fortress there to the north. Should the Russian mitten start to close in around Avdivka? And frankly, they have made some progress. Although they were defeated to the north at uh, Novo-Kapanivka, they were defeated in the South at Avdivka and they were defeated, uh, at Pervo, uh, Mayski when they tried to go up the M30, but they have made some gains at incredible cost. Uh, losses alone in Avdivka almost reached a thousand at certain points this week, a thousand Russians a day. um, I don't think that's sustainable. Right. And especially when you're feeding, you're you're taking a battalion and you're 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 feeding it into the furnace one one company at a time. So you've got a brigade or a battalion, its tactical elements are three companies acting in concert not one going ahead and getting grilled and the other two sitting back going, geez, I hope it's not our turn tomorrow. It should be three companies approaching a Ukrainian objective, uh, battling it out. And the commander looking back who made the most progress reinforce them. Russia isn't fighting like that. That's their doctrine. That's sound. Those are military best practices Uh, that have existed forever, Russia isn't doing that. If that mitten starts to get together, and if it closes in on a place like uh, Orlevka, because Russia is tactically inept, it will then wind up fighting in the streets of Avdivka. They, they won't be able to resist. Uh, Putin will tell them, I want you to take the city of Evdivka and Ukraine as it had done in Severodonetsk, as it did in Bakhmut, as it's done as it did in, in Hersan before, you know, when it was first taken, they will fight the Russians doorknob to doorknob in Avdivka. That will be made possible by by the fact that it has this multitude of ground lines of communication and supply. If these Russian military commanders were competent, they would content themselves on closing the loop, right? Getting the getting the thumb and the fingers close together, completely isolating Avdivka, and by that means compelling the Ukrainians to withdraw. But they won't do it we've seen them they can't resist the siren call of urban combat ukraine doesn't resist that call because if you are the defender in an urban warfare situation three-dimensional urban warfare it takes five or ten guys to get you out of a position and you're just going to slaughter russians so there's Evdivka. what so what are the consequences if Ukraine loses Avdivka. So put your finger on the map and just fill in that white space around Avdivka. Just fill it in, paint it red. What will the Russians have gained? Well, you can look at Avdivka and uh, there are no roads going out of it, right? There's the, uh, there's an O series highway, the 0542. Uh, It doesn't go anywhere. Furthermore, it has to cross a river There is a river to the south of it. Avdivka, like Bakhmut, is the gateway to nowhere. And uh, losing it is not going to be a stab in the guts to Ukraine. Now, politically, is it going to look good? Well, not really. But maybe losing Avdivka would be the wake-up call that the West needs. It may be losing Avdivka would underscore to Washington... All of the negative factors under which the Ukrainian army has to labor. Lack of air superiority, lack of artillery parity, lack of air defense dominance, being outnumbered uh, in terms of manpower and materiel. Maybe that's enough to wake up the West. But losing Avdivka is not going to be the end of the world. I don't think that's imminent. I don't think that's going to happen in the next month. There is an indication that Russia is beginning to realize that it's armored, armored thrusts, uh, main battle tanks and armored fighting vehicles uh, trying to uh, probe uh, Ukrainian held territory that that's not working. There are indications now that Russia is sending soldiers out on foot, Well, that's not going to work. Uh, so They're having trouble right now crossing the open space with vehicles going 20 miles an hour, which is about as fast as any vehicle can move uh, across country. They're not going to do better when they've got soldiers on foot moving at about two miles an hour, because that's about as fast as a soldier can, can move over open ground and that's hauling ass. So,
5: and Chuck, they're also going through areas where they have laid minefields, the Russians themselves, not mapped them too, right? They, they're they're having to go through some of their own minefields in these areas. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah. And, you know, normally when you lay a minefield, you've got a competent person out there with a compass or GPS, and he marks down where every mine is. And the Russians have thrown out so many tens of thousands of mines, they don't know where any, any of them are. They have no idea. They never made no attempt to map the minefield. Interestingly, there was a, there was a, a video today. Russia took an armored personnel carrier, loaded it up with two tons of high explosive. Uh, this is a trick they actually learned from uh, Al-Nusra. They loaded it up with you know two tons of explosive, put a cinder block on the accelerator, tie off the steering wheel, and uh, drive it towards the enemy. So a Ukrainian drone was following this vehicle. They watched the driver bail out, watched him run away. And if you get a chance to watch that video, uh, notice that this soldier was smart enough to run in the tire tracks that this vehicle had just driven on. So he realized, well, you know, I didn't get blown up, so tire tracks are the way out well this vehicle only went about 300 more meters before it hit a mine and exploded just exactly the way you think 2 tons of explosives would go off but again an absolutely idiotic idea who did they think <laughs> who did they think this was going to hit these are the sort of military stunts that you know they're they're simply just not going to work why you know this is like something that a 13-year-old kid playing uh, Call of Duty would come up with. It just isn't going to work. So I don't, I don't see Avdivka falling anytime soon, but I see Russia putting everything it has into this fight because as far as any place on the battlefield, I think this is the one place that, that uh, Russia could possibly uh, succeed.
5: Yeah, And Chuck, thank you. You you absolutely read my mind. I actually just put that video. Um, it's from Special Curse Oncast first uh, in the nest now for, for the listeners. Uh, we actually saw this. I, I'd actually shared this with Robin before you started talking about the update because I was going to actually ask you about this. And so uh, thank you very much. Uh, again, you stole you read my mind, stole my question. Um, I did want to
2: steal in your yeah. thunder, but I'm sorry.
5: Yeah. No, no, no worries. I, but I did have a, a serious question about that. And that is just this seems like that the Russians are just spitballing as far as tactics are concerned. I, I just I, what kind of doctrine or I mean, it just doesn't seem like there's any sound doctrine that this type of tactic would would take. But you, we've seen this over and over again. It's exactly right. It seems like it's the mind of a 13 year old just trying to figure some way out to, through this. Um I, it just it's just mind-boggling to me just what the mentality is or, or where this may be based in terms of just military operations. And I just wonder, I mean, is there any doctrine that you know of or, 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 or basis in logic, mil- uh, military or otherwise, that this would make sense?
2: No, you know, it almost seems like it's this stunt that they pulled off and this gave everybody a day's rest because they were going to pull off this stunt. But, you know, when you, you see that drone fly over and look what is out ahead of the, of this booby trapped APV. I mean, there's nothing, you know, it's just wide open fields. If you were able to drive that two two tons of explosives into some Ukrainian headquarters somewhere. Yeah, maybe, but it just, isn't going to work. And the other thing is that, you know, the Russians have taken a tactic that was used against them in Syria and they've subtracted all the logic out of it. Right. So what El Nusri used to do, and they don't have to have Al Nusra didn't have to have somebody jump out of the vehicle, right? Somebody was going to get the 70 virgins and a mule. They were going to drive this thing in. So that's lost on the Russians as well. And the other thing that Al Nusra used to do, in urban fighting is you drive that thing down a road, right? You drive that thing down a narrow lane and you drive that vehicle into uh, a building, a strong point. So Al Nusra actually applied some tactical sense to it. It just makes no sense at all to build this thing in, uh, outside of Omaha, Nebraska and point it West and what what's the target you know what what were we supposed to do here there's so many there's so many instances here where look and previously soviet maneuver war warfare doctrine was sound it was something that nato feared it was something that we knew they rehearsed we knew they had the resources and and generally we knew that their men were trained to the task There was always a chance to take advantage of that very rigid, top-down, micromanagerial command structure. We always planned to take advantage of that. And the NATO fight was going to be an asymmetrical fight as well. You know, back in the, you know, in the earliest part of my career, the Cold War was still on. And uh, the missions that we were training for, naval special warfare missions in Europe, it was basically, we were on one-way missions. We were going to hit a command center, and then we were going to do what's called E&E out of the target area, which means escape and evade. It means run for your life. All of NATO expected to literally be pushed all the way back into the English Channel before we could get adequate forces over to counter that that Soviet juggernaut. They seem to have forgotten everything that made their army made it, made it to be taken seriously. They ignore their own doctrine now. And they do that for a couple of reasons. They didn't seem to be able to execute on it. And now they're facing these new tactical and technological innovations that Ukraine just keeps throwing at them. So I, I, you know, I, (laughs) I wish I, I wish I could report that Russia is doing uh, scary things on the battlefield, right? Generally, they're not. But this is a place to watch because Russia does have the resources to take Avdivka, but they are not going to do it succinctly. They're not going to do it cleanly, and it is going to cost them an enormous amount of manpower and materiel, to take Avdivka and again you fill in that little fill in that white space around Avdivka fill it in with red and you can see what a hollow hollow victory that would be it is not a transportation hub it is not a gate gateway to the north or to the west and uh, it it just isn't it's not going to be a gain but it's going to be a good place for Ukraine to engage these Russian forces and to put a weapon on them.
5: Yeah. It, it sounds very much like, uh, what we saw with Bakhmut, which is, uh, it's an opportunity to, to fix and to, uh, fire away. And, uh, and if the Russians are going to use tactics, like what they had with this, uh, this, uh, personnel carrier, just loading it up with a bunch of TNT and sitting along. That's just, that's upside down logic to me. Uh, that's just, and, and speaking of upside down, um, Let's go to our hand here to our friend uh, in Australia. Uh, Will you might you might have a, a point or two on this. How, how are you doing, Will? Go ahead.
4: Doing well, Michael. Um, so this is this is where this is the time of day where I get to argue with Chuck. All right, Chuck. Here's here's the thing. <laughs> hey, Will. How are you, mate? Good to
2: hear you, buddy. Thank, I'm good, mate. Thank
4: you. So I'm gonna I'm gonna push back just a little bit here on Avdivke in that I agree that taking Abdivka provides Russia nothing but a political advantage, which they will use back home greatly, which is, is of, of an, in and of itself. Whether or not the cost will be reasonable or not if they were able to do that would be another thing. But the other the other thing it does, Chuck, it's not so much what it gives Russia, but what it does take away from Ukraine is the capability. If they were able to take the high ground at Abdivka, the entire bowl south and west of there Toward Pisky, you know, Ukraine would lose almost certainly every, uh, they'd lose their, their Epitny, they'd lose Voidanya, you know, the other area would become untenable for Ukraine if, if they took Avdivka, because all the supply roads in there uh, come from the, from the East. And it provides one of the avenues of attack about 30 kilometers separated from each other, which is the ideal place to be able to locate those things so that they don't have, mutual fire support capability between the points. This is one of the things that Ukraine's maintained throughout the war, which is a capability to have these points where they're sticking a dagger in, separated amongst, beyond each other, so that the Russians can't support one another, which means that they can trap them in place. And so it's, this, it would be a loss, not a loss of the war, but it, it would be a loss of a, a point of, Almost strategy or tactics to be able to control the area south and west of it, I believe. And the other thing uh, that I think it would do is the I love Russia attacking at Avdivka at, at because you will note that yesterday and the day before Russia or Ukraine made additional slight games near Horlivka. And it's my feeling that Horlivka, because of the road and rail junctions there, is a much bigger strategic prize than either Bakhmut or Avdivka would be, because there's no way they're going to storm Donetsk. It's just too big and too well defended. But uh, the prize up in between Bakhmut and Avdivka here, to me, is Horlivka. And keeping keeping Russia engaged at Avdivka doesn't allow them, well, to counter what's going on in Klish, Klishivka all the way down to Kurominka, And now they're opening up even south of there at, at So I think it would be a loss, but not a not a major loss to Ukraine to lose Avdivka, but most importantly would be the political uh, element that Russia would use for that. And to your point, maybe maybe if they lost that, that would spur things on. It, it just feeds into my my thesis that The West might be treating this like some sort of weird science experiment to to determine how well Ukraine can do with how little they get. And that sickens me, frankly, because um, if you want this, I am going to beat you in this bet that this is going to take another four years. I am going to beat you in that bet. This is this, Chuck, this can be over by the end of 2024 if the United States, all the liberal democracies engage in this the way they would uh, on Lend-Lease during World War II. Chuck, I'm I'm still convinced this can be over in another year and a half if the West was to engage the way it's supposed to, with an air force, with long-range strike capabilities, quit tying Ukraine's hands and treating this like a science experiment, because the longer this takes, the more Russia has time to adapt. And they will solve the problems they have with radios. They will solve the problem they have with cryptography. They will solve the problem they have in relation to feeding people in or getting more people and getting more equipment. Because they're doing it right now with North Korea, China, and Iran. And the, the forces of evil, I will call them, that when they when they get called on to provide something, they give it in 10 days. That's how long it took between... Meeting in Vladivostok between Kim and, uh, and Putin, the, the arms, the 50, 152 and 122 millimeter shells started flowing 10 days later, Chuck. And that's, that's our problem. If, if Avdivka, if they are able to get a overwhelming shell advantage in, in Avdivka, Russians, because they have tubes, if they get enough uh, um, artillery to suppress Russia, uh, Ukrainian capability here, They could storm the northern part of uh, the uh, coke plant. If they get lodged in that coke plant, it's the grind through Bakhmut. And I find that still to be too dangerous to accept, especially when we're talking about the United States still not coming to the party with XXX million dollars of bullets for everything every month. If we don't crack that nut this could be a very, very bad winner, is my feeling. So I don't think that's a big strategic loss, but I think it is a, it is a loss of opportunity for Ukraine that shouldn't be missed.
2: Well, amen. I, can't, I cannot disagree with a single thing that you said. And, you know, I like the term science and experiment because I keep waiting. What is taking you so long? A splendid point made about North Korea. Uh, ditto Iran. You know they didn't dither with their aid. It was it was uh, expeditiously supplied. And another really really great point you made is extending this war is only going to allow the adversary to adapt. I think we're still in this window. Look, if the United States only supplied the attackums that were going to have to be destroyed in the next year because they've exceeded their shelf life. If they only gave them that couple of thousand attackums, you're right. There wouldn't be a red mitten closing over Avdivika because every single place that Russia tried to concentrate would get annihilated. And I agree with you as well. There isn't going to be a Ukrainian thrust into Donetsk. It, it, that is never going to happen. And things are getting closer here in Avdivka than they should have gotten. And I absolutely, your point is is very well taken. It would be a PR disaster to lose Avdivka. And the aid and comfort that would give to Putin you know, he, he can drag that up on, on stage uh, and, and his stump speeches and promise the Russian people that this is what's going to happen to the rest of Ukraine. And, Will, nobody is going to be happier to buy you a beer at the Crimea beach party and say, I was wrong because I don't want to be right. And part of my my calculus is, unfortunately, Washington dragging its feet. And nobody can answer why that is. That is, I mean, yeah. Well, you and I know we can't answer it, and we agree with why we can't answer it. And it, it just isn't making any sense.
5: Thanks very much, Will. Before we go um, to a couple other hands, I wanted to real quick, uh, I know Arch Instinct, I, I think you might be on a PC and you might not be able to put your hand up, but I know you've been in the speaker for, for a little bit. So I wanted to just to give you the opportunity to speak real quick. Did you have a question for Chuck?
8: Yeah, I only had one question. What was going on in Kherson <laughs> at the moment? I haven't been able to find anything about uh, Ukraine, Ukraine crossing the river. What town have they been taking, and uh, what's the current situation?
5: Well, thank, thanks for your question. I know we are going to be getting to it. We do have a map in the nest, uh, so we'll be getting in, into uh, Kherson. So um, I think uh, what we might be the best up? pivot to pivot to uh, Kherson is one of our next maps.
2: Absolutely we will get there and I think we'll be making an an intermediate stop but we will go through uh, all the news I could get out of Kherson today. So uh, we'll get there in uh, well momentico as we used to say south of the border.
9: I just want to jump in with the public service announcement.
2: Uh... Uh, here he is buddy how are you?
9: Hello hello I'm at home in a, a room of uh, sanity and common sense and great analysis if you uh if you like what you hear please do consider retweeting the space send it off tell your mom wheel grandma out of the house show it to her uh and also if you can donate to my report uh, Maria report supports amazing charities across U- Ukraine it also helps um advocate for Ukraine and for all people who uh Are oppressed and facing russian disinformation which is the whole world actually so please do uh donate it as a 501c3 if you can you can also tell your employer and some companies in the states and they'll match your donation because it's a 501c3 um the work we do here is tireless um and it's thankless there's an amazing group of volunteers all over the world that i like to thank they're great and uh and and they really keep the lights on and, and do the right thing it was brought to my attention that there is a space going on um, with a fellow named Keith Woods, I wouldn't normally say the names, Keith Woods, Lucas, Gage, and Suleiman Ahmed, and uh, I received probably 20 plus messages after a little nap with a little one about the vile racism, bigotry, xenophobia, um, and anti-Semitism in the space. Uh, I can't find it because one of the fellows there has me blocked, probably better he has me blocked. and uh, I had inter- I had seen this individual, a uh, neo-Nazi American, pretty pretty weird and pretty, um, you know, bigoted. Um, but I, I would ask that if uh, apparently the Keith Woods guy, we're talking tinfoil hat, like Jews have uh, advocated for the murder of white people or some white genocide and replacement theory. And, uh, and therefore now they're... Oh, boy. Yeah, like real tinfoil hat lunatic stuff and, and combining themselves with the pro Hamas crowd. Um, I, if you do get a chance to listen to the recording, uh, and if I can, I, I will find it and find a way to report it. Um, if you find what you've heard is uh, against the terms of service, I've never in two years asked anyone. Uh, I tuned in and uh, I found a way to tune in anonymously on the computer there and I was able to listen Uh, It was the most disgusting rants of anti-Semitism and not just uh, anti-Semitism, anti-immigrant, you know, black people and brown people. uh, They are gloating that the the Jews allowed for immigration to the West and now they're reaping their rewards. Ha ha ha. Forget the anti-Israel stuff. It's not relevant. You can be anti-anything. But the behavior uh, of what I heard um, was so egregious. I felt I you know, it was it was incumbent upon me to share with our audience that if you want to hear disinformation, that is it. If we don't keep doing what we what we're doing, we will end up with more of those, frankly, lunatics, um, the abuse, and just the conspiratorial nature of it. With with you know uh, six thousand or five, whatever, how many people are in the room? I'm not sure how many are bots, but uh, clapping seals. And you can read the report, the v- reviews on the space. It's just complete and total Nazi and bigoted, and I mean and misogynist, uh, blaming blaming Jews for women's rights. I'm not sure how that's something to be blamed for, but whatever. Um, so if you do uh, feel so inclined to hurt your ears and listen, I think I know that it's a free speech platform, but. Um, Uh, according to the owner. Uh, But uh, those are definite terms of service violations. I just listening to it for about five minutes. I probably counted 15 of them. It was really bad.
2: But you know who facilitates that, right? And whose interest that serves. That is, you know, that's like FSB 101. It is, you can, you can always find some weirdo who likes to wear black uniforms from world war two and goose step around in his backyard. But I, you know, those people are lunatics, but it is in Russia's interest to find those idiots, bring them together and have them spew this, this nauseating garbage. Right. So yeah, we can all jump on that folks. I mean, we are all in the information war and that sort of hatred and divisiveness. Look, I wrote a book about Che Guevara. Interestingly, one of the things he said, he was, he was stirring up trouble in Bolivia, and he told his support network back in Havana, lean on the schisms, right? Insert yourself into every polarized political situation and simply stir it up, right? Because the surrounding garbage and bull and vile uh, nonsense russia wins on that stuff right they seek to divide us with that stuff so we can tell them where to put it we can tell them where to 100%. Put it.
9: this is 100 percent in russian a kgb fsb influence operation um the, the the what's really unique about this space which is really strange is it's packed with far right racist psychopaths and far left the racist psychopaths mix with pro-Hamas people. So the pro-Hamas people and the far left psychopaths are listening to right wing psychopaths talk about how Jews let let um you know you know people of color into the West. I'm not sure what that even means. It's so bizarre um, because you know Jews are at the border, I don't know, or they control immigration policy in the United States. And 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 they're ignoring oh, each other's oh they're they're ignoring each other's hatred for each other. To promote this, and then they went on Ukraine. You know, Ukrainian Nazis and r- Russia. Good. It is truly everything we have been fighting against and and warning about that is coming is manifested in that one space. And I don't want people to go listen to it. Uh, I would prefer you. Um, you know, I, you can. I don't want. We put, can talk. Wanna...
2: Look how br- look how brilliant these guys are. You've got a legitimate American Nazi talking about how bad the Nazis are in Ukraine. I mean, just slow me down, Tex, and explain that to me. But all they want to <laughs> do is stir up hatred. It does. It just yeah. doesn't matter. And They've come somebody, together full circle. Somebody tonight is getting the order of the red banner at FSB headquarters because there's there's a thousand people listening to that crap in that space. It's their,
9: yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. Look,
2: disgusting. Disgusting. Listen.
9: To our audience, another thing I need you to do, it'd be really good if you did, in the bottom right corner of your phone is a, a purple pillar. It's a purple uh, chat feature that, that connects to the the posting for report for this space. Please fill it up. Put in your comments, even if it's a word of congratulations or if, if it's a question for Chuck or one of the panelists or for the co-hosts or if you want to you know, let people know you have a cute dog and you want to post a picture, I'll tell you why. What that does is it actually increases... The space. If you want, you know, the words from Chuck's mouth and and the co-hosts and the speakers to be heard by more people across this platform, if you type in there, this actually boosts the algorithm and it puts. Maria report as a listening space further up the 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 ranking, uh, if when people view spaces, it's I don't understand it. I get I guess I get the idea of, as to why. Um, and if you're someone who's like, well, I'm not important, you're wrong. Each of these accounts are the same. If you you know you might want not want to post, do post in there. Even say hello. You know, because what it does is it, it increases our array, our reach. It's better than advertisements. You know, it's better than any of that stuff. Um, report tried, you know, doing what other people do and doing advertisements. And Marie report was blocked uh, to do ads on Twitter just to promote our own spaces. Um, it's because of the Ukraine content, we suspect. They won't tell us what it is. Um, there's nothing particularly, I think, I think I think. someone last year on the main account wrote, you know, Russia commits genocide, uh, and, and that in itself would make the account ineligible. So the only thing that we have, so you see our spaces, we have six, five, six hundred. those are all real people. If we only have 200, it's because it's we're, we're just running pure and clean. The one way we can get um, more people listening and hearing is if you inter- inter- engage and interact with, with emojis, with, uh, with typing in that space. Uh, typing in that uh, chat feature there. It might not be purple for you. It might just be a circle. Sometimes it's purple when it lights up. Add in there. Keep typing. Do it every five minutes. It doesn't matter because the more you do it, the more people see it, the more people hear the message. You know, so Report can't advertise just because it's posted so much support of Ukraine and, and fighting Russian disinfo. For some reason, I think there are keywords that, that it doesn't like. So the, the feature is, is blocked. But some of these other pop up spaces, they get five, 6,000. They can pay. They can pay 500 bucks for one day just to get 5,000, 10,000 listeners in one go. We don't have that, you know, because we're we're clearly, we're biased on the, on the side of freedom, righteousness, and Justice and that bothers some people. So please do. You know, I'm not saying it's it's a it's a conspiracy against us. It's just the nature of of our of our broadcasting and our reporting. Uh, we don't shy away from calling a genocide a genocide, and as a result, we have that issue. So do please continue to type in there, let people know, ask Chuck a question, the co-host will take a look at it, hear and there if you don't want to speak or you can't speak, you're sleeping, someone's sleeping beside you, send in a message, engage with us, and the more that you interact, the greater the audience is, and I'll, I'll, I'll yield the mic, I apologize for interrupting, but I did want to share that, and I do think it's important to share you know, about unsafe and um, frankly, potentially illegal and criminal activity on Twitter. Um, if we allow it and ignore it, it'll just keep happening. And uh, we know what happens when we ignore the injustices and the you know criminality of certain people. It just festers online. Thanks so much.
2: Well, points well taken. And uh, it is exactly uh, what the KGB called active measures and what is now information warfare. And just stirring up that stinking dumpster fire—it's—it's it's a win, right? It, it, it's a win for for Russia. It takes the world's eye off off the ball here in Ukraine, and it seeks to divide Western democracy. And you're giving the microphone to knuckleheads whose uh, ideas nobody's buying. Very interesting Yehud is saying you got bigots on the on the right, on the extreme right, talking to bigots on the extreme left. So, yeah, if someone can turn in there, drop a dime on them. I mean, I'm not usually a narc myself, but uh, I reserve special tactics for uh, racists. And he uh, loves off, my friend. And uh, I'm not a rattlesnake, right? I don't give you a warning. I'm more like a copperhead, and uh, yeah, you're bitten deal with it but uh onward onward folks and uh if you know what later on tonight drop a dime on those guys we can uh we can shut them down and uh and deal with them and michael do you think we should uh go to velika nova silka uh on route to uh herson
10: yeah
5: absolutely i do know we we have a number of hands as well so
2: um absolutely let's let's fry them up
5: yeah, let's let's go there, and yeah, and thanks for coming up, Yehuda. I know we had Marcus here, but we definitely needed to have more than one Canadian up here in the speakers. Um, you know, we don't want Marcus to <laughs> be special. Um, just the order of hands as I have them, and, and Robin, please keep me uh, honest on this. I have Marcus followed by Arya followed by Lexicon, um, and then I have uh, Debater fella. That's the order I have. Does that sound right to you, Robin?
0: Exactly. Yep.
5: Okay. All right. So we'll go. Uh, we'll go. Marcus, go ahead.
0: Marcus answer. is going to recycle, and we'll bring it All right.
5: No problem. Let's uh, go to the next hand-in. Let's go to uh, Ari Abin.
6: Uh Chuck, as always, thank you uh, for being here and uh, spending your time uh, informing us. A couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, for Yehuda, there was an article put out by, I forgot the name of the group, that was retreated by Arm Ukraine Now pertaining to the Twitter algorithm. I'll send you a copy of it. Uh, It explains the best research that we have as the public on how it works and what affects it. The second thing, uh, I also listened into a bit of the uh, INS or whatever the hell his name is, uh, uh, Twitter space. When I was listening, there were over 4,500 people. Um, I agree with what you were saying. It is constantly breaking terms of service. Some of the stuff there is breaking U.S. law. Um, I would like to also point out there is a similar space that is run almost 24-7 or 24-7 by Alexander Dugan and his cronies. There are also neo-Nazis, Islamists, and far left on that space. Um, I would like to remind people that there is something called the horseshoe theory. And if you look at the beliefs of the far left and the far right on many things, especially Jews, it tends to pretty much line up the wording, you know, just changes. a good example is for instance, the term Zionazi was originally thought up by uh, neo-Nazis on Stormfront. And then it's been now almost exclusively said by left-wing people. So I I really do fear there has been a convergence and because of the idea of, you know, group identity and the enemy of my enemy is my friend and all of this stuff that they're willing to overlook that. And it is growing. As I've said before on this space, I I feel the amount of people that care about freedom and are realizing these things such as Russia or Iran are a major issue uh, to all freedom-loving people in the West and in the East, for that matter. But I do really fear that the numbers are growing on the crazies and the people that are mentally ill or low IQ or low information that are buying up the BS, and it is growing. And... As I believe it was Chuck said, that's why, you know, spaces like this are so important and to continue doing what we can to counter it. In regards to a deep deep kill possibly falling, I agree it will be a huge PR uh, win for Putin in regards to his domestic population. I am not concerned about that, nor am I concerned about the anti-Ukrainian people that will use it as a battering ram to to attack. What I am concerned about is all of the people in America and other Western countries who are either on the fence or are starting to have war exhaustion or are starting to, you know, say Ukraine can't win this, they need to X, Y, Z, D, E F G. And that's my fear. If it falls, that a lot of those people will turn to the we're not supporting Ukraine anymore. In regards to Lend-Lease or anything like that, I think the big issue is we don't see it as a war yet in most Western countries, I don't think we realize we're at war with Russia and Iran. And I think some of the governments understand it, but they don't necessarily have the backbone to properly explain it to the populations and to properly mobilize the population in the same way we were able to during World War II and then during the Cold War. And I am really fearful that if we cannot get our act together soon with this, that when things get worse, they're going to get much worse. Uh, then I have a question for you, Chuck. You've 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 been through some some real things. Um, you know, you you you've spent decades studying uh, everything from genocide to horrible wars, and 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 and, and you know very depressing things. And I, I've only been you know studying these things for a little over a decade, and. Sometimes I get very depressed and I get very pessimistic about this. I was wondering if you had advice and your thoughts on staying positive, especially as I do believe things are going to get worse before they get worse. So I'd, I'd appreciate any thoughts on that. And again, thank you very much for all the time you spend here. I, I learned more from you than I think pretty much any other speaker on Twitter. So I really, I really on a personal level, appreciate it, man.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's stood- the, Thank you very much. Here is one way to look at those sort of operations. Let's say you've got whatever. They've they've got 600 people over there uh, spewing the kind of stuff that my mama would slap a spark off my head if one of those words ever came out of my mouth. A way to look at it is that's the 600 weirdos who think like that. 600. If only we could get them into a movie theater and get the Russians to drop a bomb on them. If you realize what those, if you try to realize all of the effort that an information war adversary goes to, to find those people, a couple of like-minded people, uh, as Yehuda just said, they can buy an audience to a certain extent. they will they will they will find like-minded bigots. I like the the, the analogy of the horseshoe theory uh, exactly people on the extreme right and people on the extreme left. Uh, you know what is the difference between a uh, what was the difference actually between Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler? They were both extensions of socialism. They were both blood-soaked despots sitting on top of the world's most oppressive security apparatuses. You know, they they aren't just that far apart. What is the difference between a Nazi saying to kill all of somebody or a uh, Hamas suicide bomber? What? What's the difference? The other thing is that that vehemence that they put into it, that that shock factor, that hatred. it absolutely is not a substitute for reason, right? it It isn't a substitute for rationality. It isn't the best way to get your message across. Because of the people sitting over there listening to that nonsense, this happens too. People get on there. And they hear a couple sentences and they go, yeah, yeah. Then someone says something and they say, uh, I don't know about that. And they click off, right? It's time to worry if there are 270,000 people listening to that stuff. But there won't be, right? There, there won't be. There is also a, a trick that you can use. It isn't a trick. It, it's, it's presenting logic to these people. Someone could say, even though I saw the video today, a, an Israeli IDF officer going through the, the hospital and saying, look, here's, here's the grenades we found here. Here's the battle kit we found here. Here are, the, here are the 20 rifles we found here. And you can get someone saying, well, that's bull. That's crazy. The Israelis planted the rifles there. And you could say, well, of course, I mean, Hamas wouldn't keep rifles in a, in a hospital, would they? That, that would be, I mean, that, that's unheard of. They wouldn't do that, would they? Well, of course not. They wouldn't do that. Well, just, just calm down. And how do you explain why are there rifles there? Right? Why, why are there 200 rifles there? Well, the Israelis put them there. Hamas wouldn't do that, would they? No, no. You can chip away at that person's you can you can you can share their make them see how untenable their position is well hamas didn't kill 1500 murder 1500 israeli civilians that's completely overrated well absolutely well hamas wouldn't just shoot down women or children would they well of course not they they wouldn't put anybody in a car and wire them together and burn them alive in their car would they well of course not well Tell me why this radiologist has this picture of these two, these two burned corpses, and what, why are they tied together with wire? Did, did the Israelis do that to their own people? You can always approach these people and, and calmly reflect back to them what their positions are. For example, that Nazi in America saying, we've got to wipe out the Nazis in Ukraine. And you can say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Are, are the Nazis good here, but not good in Ukraine? It's just, it, it, you just be calm about it. Uh, there are always places in society that you don't want to go, right? There, there's things you're not interested in. You don't, you don't really want to shoot heroin, right? So you, you just, you can, there are these pockets on the internet and look, they're just vile. They're, they're grotesque. The bad thing is overreacting to these things, right? Never before in history have people like that had a microphone, have been able to voice these things and to write these things. And they do so with impunity because they're in their mother's basement. They're, they're not they don't, they can write and say and speak things where they don't have to worry about physical consequences, right? They can say these vicious things uh, because they think they're safe. They think that they can say these things without consequence. But what we can do is drop by these sites and just report them. You don't have to fill your ears up with that garbage. Hear something that is objectionable. Write it down look at the time hack, and send it in. And if enough of us do that, these guys will go away. But unfortunately, as Yehuda was saying, there is something about what we do that Twitter doesn't like. And everyone listening here knows, look, we we just lay the facts out. We do so calmly. Uh, But there is something about supporting Ukraine that they don't like. I mean, I've seen it in my own timeline. I've seen the numbers of people who uh, retweet a map. I've seen that go from 100,000 down to 20,000 all of a sudden. Uh, it, it's just the environment we live in. All we can do is just keep on the beam. We are part of the information space here. And guys, we're winning this section, right? This section is a bastion of free speech of reason, of humanity, and that's where we're going to stay.
6: Here, here, Chuck. Can, can I can I say something real quick?
5: Oh, um, please, yes. Sorry, we've got uh, Marcus. We'd like to go to Marcus. He had to cycle back up, and he was right before you. So, uh, Marcus, uh, thank you for coming back up. Go ahead.
3: Yes. Um, I just wanted to say that it's not a coincidence that we're seeing this within less than 24 hours since Elon Musk. Pretty publicly and well and heavily reported, he amplified that weird conspiracy theory about the about Jewish people hitting white people, which is weird because almost all Jews are coded white in terms like people. A lot of people look at Jewish people and go, "Oh, that's a white person," because it's like a religion and not a skin color. But anyways, that I mean, that's not even the craziest part of that conspiracy theory. Just just it's a little nonsensical. Um, point being is he just yesterday um said you know the thing about oh you're speaking the truth under some weird neo nazi conspiracy theory post and then a bunch of papers wrote about it right so now we have a big space full of those psychopaths because when big famous people do things like that it raises a flag that tells those crazy people hey look you can you know you want to come talk about it let's be more open about this
5: Mark Marcus real quick, yeah. just want to stand and check I think just to let you know Chuck may not respond to you real quickly. I think he's coming right What's back it? he uh told, told me he could not um could not hear you, so we're going to get him right back up but just 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 wanted to I just want- get warning yeah. that. we'll bring him back up, but um he he's listening, but come on
3: also Elon's not actually an engineer, so you know that's actually not it's a crime to pretend you're an engineer by the way, e- including in Texas where he lives, so there's that. And the other part that drives me absolutely crazy is that this has gotten worse and worse the longer we have either tacitly allowed it or allowed it it simply through the fact that we don't respond vigorously enough to it. You know, like, grandma shushing you at church doesn't stop you from saying the things you would say that made her shushy. You just try to talk quieter. And that's basically the kind of response these psychos have been getting is a shush in church. Right. So, although some of them are deplatformed, here we are again on Elon Twitter. And he went back and brought back the worst of the worst of the neo Nazis. And he said, Here you go, guys. Your speech is great. So, I don't think it's a coincidence this space is popping up after he amplified that weird conspiracy theory or that everything is going on at a time where Russia needs distractions. And Iran needs distractions, so malicious actors are amplifying things online, and it's particularly bad on Twitter, where the bot problem is nightmarish.
2: You know, there there is one other thing though, and it's like I'm 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 kind of a free speech absolutist, and it's 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 really hard to defend my position sometimes. But there's a couple of things going on here with Elon, who I don't I don't think I agree with anything he does, but he's got a service to sell and he wants to attract people to it. And if he has a monkey that will eat its own doo-doo and people will pay to watch it, then he wants to welcome those people back. He needs controversy, right? And there's this real fine line we, we walk by giving these idiots any kind of attention at all because there's a certain point where you get down into the weeds with a troll fight with some of these idiots. And, you know, I I mean, I've had this going on for years, brand new account started in June, 2023 with zero followers banging all over me. And you know what? It's like, dude, you got two followers. You joined after the invasion. I'm not going to dignify what you say with a, with a comment but I know it's hard. I mean, I, 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 I really do. I, I know it, it's disgusting. It's aggravating. It's uh, a, it's a lot more than aggravating it. It, you know, it's obscene, but unfortunately, I mean, Twitter is a dumpster fire. It, it really is. All we can do, I think is hold course and speed here. But I, listen, I, I absolutely share your disgust. Uh, you know, I'd love to get kinetic with this, but uh, it, it it doesn't do us much good.
3: I think, and I, I don't disagree on some of that, but I would say there is an element of we've gotten to a stage where um, we would never permit um, major newspapers or television networks to be doing the weird anti-Semitic stuff and bringing on KKK people to be like, hey, let's talk about your feelings about being a KKK member and or whatever, right? In a in a way that is disingenuous and amplifying of that stuff, um, without consequences, right? But we don't regulate the consequences on this type of platform. I mean, to be fair, I think the EU is going to. <laughs> and I think if the if you if he uses, yeah. uses access to the EU, I think that the rest of the shareholders in this weird little privatized uh, purchase of Twitter is is going to be very unhappy because i think he's like 30 or something so yeah it, it, i mean
2: i'm happy to see them take every lump you know listen no I, I i pray for their demise as
7: you do
5: thanks very much marcus so robin and, and chuck uh, i know we've got a few more hands and um i know we've still got some maps um i want to go definitely want to go to the curse on there so um if, if y'all are okay with it, I think maybe take a couple of hands, and then uh, the remaining hands, we've got a Lexicon, Debater, followed by Dry Fly, and then we can um, uh, get back uh, on to uh, uh, finishing up bullet points here. We're getting uh, towards the bottom of the uh, 10 o'clock, uh, getting towards, close to 10 o'clock. We're right at about 9.30 on the East Coast. So, um, yeah, we
0: just ask everyone to be as concise as humanly possible. Thanks.
5: Yeah, don't do what I just did.
0: Um, but
2: <laughs> Don't do uh, what I do.
0: Chuck, you're allowed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm filling up the airspace, man. It's a, keep talking. We need to sell space out the commercials.
0: So I think Lexicon is is next, right, Michael?
5: Yes, ma'am. That's right. Lexicon followed by Debater followed by Dry Fly.
11: Okay, thanks a lot. Well, I'm feeling kind of irrelevant here because um, uh, yeah, I sent a comment, and I'm sorry that that space exists, and I kind of think that. This world of social media is so irrelevant that they're not who organizes the people. I'd ignore them, but anyway, I sent my comment. If you can chase them, do that. And I just wanted to, I was picking up off something a few speakers ago, um, because, yeah, because uh, I think we were contemplating why the heck is the West not willing to see this as uh, fairly critical. And that this war should have been won, you know, months ago and so on. I just wanted to mention um, somebody who talks about this very much more Europe focused, which is Benjamin Tallis on Jonathan Fink's Silicon Curtain, because I think it's yesterday we had Jonathan on. The space, and he was talking about Benjamin Tallis' interview that he just posted. It was coming up maybe yesterday evening, and he's a guy who he works for a German think tank and a number of other things. And I'm sure Chuck knows him or his stuff. And uh, he focuses a lot more on why Europe and specifically Germany are not. Are not giving Taurus, for example, very specifically and willing to go all the way. And what he's talking about, because we we've been saying, I guess I, I'm saying this because, uh, Chuck, as you've been saying, who knows why the heck they won't, they won't do, do the right thing. And um, what he's talking about is this obdurate, stupid, implacable insistence on seeing the world, wishing to will the world to be the way it used to be, where Russia has its place in this, you know, this is so sickening. I mean, I'm beginning to f- find it physically sickening. So to see the world the way it was, and so Russia's in its just ordained space. I don't know if you looked at that chakra, if you found it useful. I think the, the Benjamin Tallis interview on Silicon Curtain from last night is really worth taking a look at. And one of the reasons is that it focuses a lot more on the European response to uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and uh, on this obdurate uh, position that, uh, that Germany's taking, among a couple of others. So I just wanted to
2: I, raise it. It, it, it. It's so complex with, with, with Germany. They won't send Taurus, but they'll send two Patriot batteries. And yeah, because that's the you know,
11: offensive sea.
2: Yeah, but you know the other thing is the United States isn't providing a, a firm lead here, right? We we have dithered with this attackum's platform. We have dithered and dithered, and everything that we every weapon systems Ukraine is using from the U S started out with a hard no. And this slow roll of, of these platforms and what, what is so infuriating and, and Will said this tonight really well, you know, we don't give Ukraine what it needs to fight in this weight class. And then we sit there and we fold our arms and we harumph that they, that they haven't inchi- achieved the impossible with the little, the pittance that we've given them. So, I mean, I, I just, I, I can't, I, I can't answer it. But, you know, regarding Taurus, in the meantime, they've got a functional equivalent, right? They've got Storm Shadow and they've got Scalp. Uh, they have JDAMER, that's not exactly... Uh, analogous but you know they've also got small diameter bomb which is a is a you know it's a it's a 200 pound bomb you strap a rocket motor on it's got wings it can you know it can fly around it can hit targets on the reverse slope meaning it can fly over your head turn around and and hit you from behind but they need more of these and and these in lieu of the fighter planes we haven't given them right it's it, it's something it's it's a stopgap that they need so it is i i listen i i share your listen i share your outrage and your confusion
5: thanks lexicon all right two more hands um debater go ahead
12: hello good evening um i apologize in advance i have flu and I might not be as um, concise as I would like to be, but I will try. Again, I'm coming back to um, to Will and Lexicon's points here. And uh, again, the, the the point about the science experiment. Um, and I I wasn't sure if it was all right to mention this, but I want to come back to minds, to minds, something that Maria Port is, is very passionate about. Can we... Can we identify, or could Chuck, uh, any military specialist, identify? Or will military historians, will historians be able to identify in the future, whatever the future is, given that this is a war without parameters, uh, will we be able to identify a point over the last 12 to 15 months where we, those that are supposed to be allies, I'm sure we are allies of Ukraine, could have slowed limited the entrenching of the, the the what has become the most mined uh, nation on earth could we have done something could we have provided some weapons uh, some 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 material could we have done anything to to stop that was there a key mistake we made in our support for ukraine in creating this terrible mine problem and then the second part to that is, have we identified it already? Third part, are we doing anything about it already? Or fourth part, is the number of mines on the ground actually increasing? Um, and that's my question for this evening. Thank, thanks very much for, for a great discussion. Thank you.
2: Well, Great, great points. Uh, there has never been any battle space in the world as heavily mined. As, uh, as Ukraine, the Russians are, are have machines that literally spew mines in every direction. They have done that a lot uh, to their own peril. In Avdivka, they're losing people crossing the minefields that they laid. And you can't really even call them a minefield because they've just spewed these things out. Nobody knows where they are. I think one of the key weapons that historians can look back on that was not provided to Ukraine in great numbers, I'm one of those guys that think ATACMS made their debut in the first attack on the Kerch Bridge. I may be proved completely wrong about that. The United States only said they didn't provide ATACMS. They didn't say that Bahrain didn't. They didn't say the North that South Korea didn't and they didn't say that Romania didn't. But that is one of the weapons that could have an outsize effect on on the battlefield, breaking up Russian resources and manpower before it ever gets to the zero line. And if you don't have an air force, attackums is one of the next best things. Uh, you know, 300 miles. So that's the difference between... Uh, you know that's the difference between Marina del Rey and Monterey California that's that's a big big hump with that weapon Ukraine could interdict uh air stations in Crimea and I think they've already done it but th- they could be doing it more often I think uh, another big problem that we're going to be looking at is we should have been revamping Ukraine's air force sooner but that isn't the 100% solution right Getting those F sixteens into the fight, it that's not gonna turn the tide of the war, believe me. It's going to help, but four thousand attackums would probably help a lot more. But we'll see. Short, short answer to a to a complex and very good question. Thanks very much, John. Thank you.
5: Okay. So we'll we'll go to Drafly and then we'll go to Kerson. Drafly, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I just wanna remind people that when we say that the war is between the West and Russia, China, Iran, and why don't why doesn't the West recognize it? I think the Western leaders do recognize it; they just can't do a lot about it. I mean, it's if you're going to make that statement, you better back it up. Um, you can make snide remarks and a few attacks and stuff, you know, uh, in the press. But if you're going to make an accusation that yeah we are at war with Russia to your public, what are you going to do about it? And it's a lot more than just giving attackums to Ukraine. And I think people forget that, um, that, that sometimes saying nothing is a lot better than saying stuff you can't back up. And um, with that, I would like to ask Chuck a question with respect to uh, of Divka. So we're all concerned about it falling. It looks an awful lot to me like it's a similar situation with Bakhmut, where the Ukrainians are, are content to let Russians die. While buying time. What do you think they're buying time for? Are they buying time for Kirsten? Are they buying time for the winter to be over? Are they buying time for the West to come off, you know, off the dime? Or do you really think that they're rethinking their strategy and how they go forward? Um, we've talked a lot about more of a hybrid peer on peer conflict between hybrid, meaning peer on peer versus with, um, you know, insurgency. Uh, as opposed to more of a NATO-style peer on peer, because they just are never going to have that. What do you think they're waiting for? Do you see any hints in their force posture that would suggest to you what they're actually looking to do um, in the next six months or so? And I'll listen.
2: Wow, uh, I'm I'm hitting the crystal ball here, which is which is pretty hard. I think that Ukraine is looking at Evdivka still as an attritional fight greater military minds than mine know that uh the the symbolism of losing Avdivka will be much greater than uh its tactical significance uh it'll give putin a domestic victory which you know is a little bit irrelevant because he doesn't need the approval of his people to uh do whatever the hell he wants I think Ukraine still sees this as a attritional fight. I think it's still Ukraine, and we're going to get to Kherson here. Uh, it 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 still seeks to unbalance uh, Russian uh, battle spaces because we remember they've they It's Ukraine that's picked these places that that the fight is on, and it, it has it has located those. To have maximum negative effect on on Russia's logistics, on its reinforcements, on uh, on the way it fights, there are no two places on the battlefield where Russia can easily converge forces. Uh, no two places on this on this whole in the whole war where Russia can share ground lines of communication. I mean, it is General Zeluzhny who picked these places out. Uh, I really don't know what's going to happen in, in avdivka, but I would say this I don't I don't see this thing collapsing in the next three weeks i I don't and I could be wrong but we did report Russian gains uh, tonight they have made some they are thus far they're limited and they are really paying for it and there there could be a time where R- Russia, uh, will be reduced, uh, to a Ukrainian peer. You can't lose, you can't lose 400,000 guys in two years of war. Uh, so next year it's going to be 600,000 people. And the year after that, it's going to be 800,000 people. So there is a, a quality in the quantity of, of Russian losses. So, you, you, you know, Ukraine is fighting at every disadvantage that we burden them with. And it just, it, it just, it just drives me nuts. A thousand attackums could, could change how the winter war is going to go. It really could. Those weapons exist, right? They are, they are locked up in storage. And some of those things have got to be destroyed next year. So why we're not shipping them, I really don't know. And, and I like your point too. I think the United States should take a cue from Norway. Don't say anything, just send it. Let the Russians figure out what's falling on their heads. And maybe two months later, you can tell them that we ship these things. We don't have to enter into an information or diplomatic relationship with the Russians. Let's just send this stuff.
1: Can I do a quick follow-up on that? Please. Um, I, I agree with you 100%. That's exactly right. Um, when I was thinking about saying nothing, I'm thinking today, for example, when Biden and G and were talking and uh, Biden supposedly left a gaffe, called him a dictator. I, I don't think there was anything accidental about that. I think there was absolutely zero accidental about that. But it was, it was small, slight, and um, a bit of a stinger. And the other one was that when she showed up, there was no red carpet, no big bruhaha. He just got off the plane onto tarmac, so he got kind of the cold shoulder. Um, I don't think there's any any doubt in my mind that Washington is sending him a message that we know there are hostilities and we're not looking for them to go away completely. Okay, um, but I just think some of us, and I mean myself and all of us on the on the on the Twitter sphere, uh, kind of. Freaking out about how things aren't moving fast enough, have to realize they can't say a lot specifically about what the plans are to bring down Putin, unless we're prepared to really do it and follow through. And it could that could get real, real ugly. So that was my whole point about that. I just think people need to chill on it. Um, and when you get to Kirsten, I'd love to hear what you have to say about um, some of the things we've talked about over the last few weeks. About are they re- are they are they infiltrating behind? behind Kirsten, you know deep into russia because you and i talked about this i think two weeks ago three weeks ago a couple times that if we were the bosses of the of that group we'd absolutely be sending units as deep as we could into um into southern ukraine to be ready to go when the thing goes up then you're behind a lot of those um you're behind those fortifications, you're behind those trenches, you're behind the mines. Sure, you don't have a huge force, you don't have armor, but you don't necessarily need it if you have the, if you have the, um, if you have surprise. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about what you see coming in the next six months or so with respect to that group, you know, with what you can say with OPSEC, and I'll listen.
2: Yeah, I think, and that's a, that's a perfect segue since we're coming up against the, the top of the hour. Uh, we could, we could go, uh, we ought to go to, to the Kherson map. Uh, and if you don't have that in front of you, uh, you have, uh, Kherson, uh, over on the left side of the map and coming up from the bottom left to the top right is the flow of the Dnipro had a heavy day, uh, in terms of Russian shelling of, uh, North bank positions, uh, the city of Kherson uh, got plastered today. And again, uh, this is just Russia shelling high-density uh, urban locations. They are, they are looking to punish the people of uh, the civilians in Kherson, and they do that in lieu of being able to, to uh, target uh, Ukrainian military assets. So the big news uh, from today... Was a another Russian attack against uh, Krynki, which is uh, a city that's three quarters of the way from Kherson to Nova Harkova. Uh, this was a Russian attack. Uh, there is drone footage. I'm sure you can see it was making the rounds. Uh, you could actually watch the Russian units breaking contact. This 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 uh, attack was. I, I keep wanting to say it was swarmed by drones, but that's not the term of art. Waves of drones hit this hit this column, destroyed its its armor leading edge, and then started clobbering the armored fighting vehicles coming up behind. Uh, we actually got to see one of those crews decide that it was better to do a K-turn in the middle of the road and drive home uh, than it was to get killed on the way to Krinky. Ukraine, again, has has picked nexus of combat here. Uh, They started with a toehold at the Anatovsky Bridge, and they were able to push that down to the northern limits of Oleshky. Then they crossed uh, at Kozachi-Liri, and they were able to take the terrain north of the Konka River, which is that little tributary, Uh, they've been able to hold on to that because they can keep the Conca river between them and the enemy. They crossed again at, uh, the railroad crossing. They were able to push that, uh, advance. That was the most lucrative, uh, landing that they made. They've been able to push that and they've remained in, in contact at Poima, just north of the M14, M17, uh, Intersection. Ukrainian artillery commands that entire uh, east-west road, which is the M14. Uh, I've indicated a whole number of drone strikes. Ukrainian first-person drones are being produced at somewhere between 20 and 40,000 units a month, and conservatively, I'd be I'd say that maybe 6 or 700 first person drones a day are flying over the Kherson battle space this whole operation thus far has been designed to force russia to keep troops south of kherson and that it, that thus far has been the 75% military solution here by very slowly and carefully linking together these beach landing sites by slowly infiltrating troops and anti-tank guided missiles and drone teams into the south bank positions ukraine as is using their periods of fog this time of year along the river as there are uh in any anyone who's lived on a major river in the fall you know, it's a, it's a big fog time. Uh, morning, uh, Ukraine is making multiple boat crossings. Russia is, is really hamstrung by the fact that the Oleshky Sands National Park divides these, these battle spaces. And when you go north on the M14 highway, there are only a limited number of north south roads that allow Russia to move troops to engage Ukrainians on the South Bank. And they are completely channelized onto those roads. Off-road transportation, you know, cross-country in this environment, it slows the Russian vehicles down. Like I said, there aren't very many military vehicles that can travel much faster than 15 or 25 miles an hour off-road. And then you get to a point where even if you are traveling faster than that, you are beating the crew to death. And if that vehicle is carrying a rifle squad, it's like putting a marble in a coffee can and shaking it. It's uh, you're getting beat up. But thus far, Ukraine is succeeding. Like I said, the most important thing is to keep the Russian forces here and also to wear them down and, Ukraine is doing that. An important place to watch. You go just west of Krinky. there is a band of forest that goes from the, the coast, the, the river, river highway down to the M-14 highway. Russia, it's not shown on the map. I got a late intelligence briefing today. Russia counterattacked in those woods today. It was reported that the Ukrainians fell back slightly but again, it was one of those attacks where Russia lost more than it gained in terms of men, materiel, and breaking up those, those attacking units. So this is a place to watch. There are, there are adequate resources on the North Bank to turn this into a major, major operation. When that's going to happen, I, I don't know. But as Dryfly pointed out and this is really true ukraine has got deeply inserted special operations forces operating to the south of this map and there are still just a few ways into this battle space the m-17 coming up from the south and the m-14 coming in from the east we're going to see ukrainian special operations forces attacking those ground lines of communication they are definitely going to do it and those attacks will be informed by russian troop movements and they will be timed and again you know you've got you've got a target it has a geolocation and then there is a time criticality right you can know where a bridge is and that bridge is going to be there all day and all night but you want to hit it to prevent movement, or you want to catch an enemy unit as it's crossing that bridge, break the bridge down, cut that unit in half, and a, and attack each half at a time. That's called defeating somebody in detail. So if Avdivka is the most hopeful-looking place for the Russians, I'd say Kherson is the brightest spot on on Ukraine's, Ukraine's battle map.
4: Thanks, Chuck. Um, bit of a swap. Michael's had to drop out to go get on with some other portion of his life. So now it's uh, excellent. I've never served with, I've never worked with Chuck before, but now I can mute him if he argues with uh, huh? me. <laughs> no.
2: I'm glad. I'm glad. Good. Welcome aboard,
4: man. I'm sorry. I got to go
2: soon yeah, too. Cheers. I've always feel cheers. We'll, I always, we'll the... I always feel bad. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I said, I always feel bad when people come on and I haven't worked on it. And I'm like, yeah, oh, I always feel like I'm, John, John, John Spencer said the other day, whenever he comes up, Chuck, he walks into a bar and Chuck leaves. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what it's like. But uh, no, I, I, that's why I, I always take the opportunity to interact with you as a questioner uh, while you're, while your show uh, is on. Um, we'll go to these last two questions. If you've got time, how much time do you have left, sir?
2: I think we can fly, we can fly these, these two will and actually, you know, I gotta, I gotta be working with my bud and we'll, I always, always, always appreciate you coming up and 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 helping out. I never see them as questions. I always, I always see it as uh, you adding, uh, you know, your your important take on it, and I'm I'm always happy to always happy to do that.
4: Well, I mean, I, I basically see it as an opportunity for me, a complete rank amateur, to uh, provide an, o- an observation based on my reading and confirm it with people who have, you know. Light years of more uh, experience than I do, which is uh, enlightening. And in this case, I'm just going to cut in and ask a quick question. Then on in this area of Kherson, I clearly see a really, really big difference in quality of troops between Ukraine side and and Russia side in this area, particularly with them plugging the 810th Marines back into the line down here after only being destroyed two months ago and filled up with Mobics. If as, and, and general Ben Hodges said this the other day as well, uh, uh, that I've been saying for weeks, if they had those 300 kilometer attack missiles, they'd be done flying airplanes out of uh, Crimea almost immediately. And at that point, uh, it's almost where Ukraine could move a, a, a force across or be looking to move across a force across in size using a, uh, bridging capabilities, you know, th- that's when they could be on the move there uh, in, in if they, And that's a, a, with a capability added like that, they could take advantage of, a, of an advantage they already hold with this FPV drone work and exploit it, but they don't have everything they need.
2: I, I would never uh, argue with anything that General Hodges says, but he is, he is absolutely right. With with sufficient precision long-range munitions, by that I mean attackums, you could shut down Crimea. You could you could cut the rail lines. You could cut the highway bridges. Uh, there are other exp- ordnance packages that I that that attackums can deliver, including mines. A thousand attackums would 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 make this war even more hopeless for Russia and you know we we had ukraine flying two two close air support missions today russia through 48 every air defense system we get we give to ukraine and it's not enough they have to roll them back to their cities to protect places like odessa to 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 protect kyiv uh, to to protect uh, every other city so it I am with you completely, you know, and I'll go one step farther. The United States needs to decide who's going to win this war. Who's going to win it. And that decision, and I'm talking to you white house, where do you want to fight the next one? Cause there will be a next one. You want to fight in Estonia, Latvia, where, where, where are we going to fight Finland? W- what, what sounds good to you? Poland, Romania, these are all places that Russia is going to go next. Uh, we've just got to do something. And I know I'm pre- preaching to the choir. Will, I'm sorry.
4: Don't be sorry. Um, now, I can't remember, or, or I didn't catch who was up next, so I'm just going to go to Incognito and assume that's correct, and he'll be polite enough to tell me if I'm wrong. You are wrong. I, I have a, I have a question, but
10: um, um, SEN something or other was way ahead of me. Um, so okay. Please... All right. Please, please come to me after.
4: We will. Send your mind.
8: You're up next. Cheers, Will. Caught me off guard there, bud. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being here tonight as always. Um, Chuck, you're amazing, man. Fellow um, Californian here. And um, I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to ask you a question. Uh, thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for the service to uh all peace loving people here uh, in Maria report and kind of got an all-star lineup of them this evening, which is always great. I wanted to pick up the scab that is Elon Musk a little bit, if you don't mind. And stab,
2: stab away I'll, and hand me the knife when you're, you get tired.
8: Gladly, sir. Gladly. Um, I just have to throw it in there. Love the space. Hate just hate coming on here. You have to wade through a ton of racism and garbage to get to the good stuff. But uh, it's good once you get here. Um, I have been trying to think about whether or not Elon was um, always an asshole and always uh, so in your face with his racism. And I don't believe that he was. If somebody wants to speak up, and correct me if I'm wrong, or DM me, uh, please do. I welcome it. Um, but I, I don't always think that he is as brash as he is today. And um, just recent events in the in the American and global political theater, I think, have led to the space where we are. And he finds some space himself in a position of power. Really enjoys it, and you know, clearly, he's getting off on what he's doing. Um, But I think there's a little bit more to it than that, and I don't know your depth in AI. Um, I was fortunate uh, enough to to hear a little bit um, at the World Economic Forum yesterday, and uh, I got to tell you what's going on Uh, in the AI space. For those of you who don't know, it's about to become a very, very big part of your lives. And One of those parts is uh, coming from Elon, and it's the part that is most relevant to and easiest to source from with regards to recent social information. So just in in layman's terms, if you're building a large language model, uh, which people are going to use to influence, let's just say advertising for right now. If you're building a large language model, and you want to pull some uh, empirical data for evidence, you're going to go to ChatGPT. But if you want to reference it with recent data, you're probably going to pull from Grok, which is Elon service that is fed by the data that's on X. So his stirring of the pot is more than just stirring of the pot. This stuff is going into algorithms that are being used to determine the way Americans think, in the way Americans, and it's likely not just American. These are global companies that are buying this data and using these algos. But um, he's painting a really nasty picture of the world that's not just being um, repeated the way that um, we're used to seeing lies being repeated. This is going to be different. And it's going to show up in places that I'm afraid um, can replicate. It. These, these hateful ideas much more easily um, than it can in just a confined twat platform like Twitter. And I just wanted to know if if this is something that has made it up uh, has made it up to your level or not in terms of um, just in terms of a topic. And I'll stop talking and listen. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah. So this this is going back, and no one will have heard of this company but I founded a company in California. Uh, God, I guess it was 15 years ago. It might even be longer. Uh, it was called Visual Purple. And uh, we pioneered exactly this kind of work. Artificial intelligence was in its sort of infancy. We didn't kind of kid ourselves back then. Uh, we used to say AI stood for appearing intelligent. But we were really working on some of the foundations of this stuff. And we became really aware of how much power is built in. There is an iron fist behind the velvet glove of chat GPT. And Send Your Mind just really hit on it completely. One of the things we worked on an engine, We it was called Sumo. Uh, you would do a task on, on the, uh, on, on something online within about 90 seconds and sometimes less Sumo could recognize how fast you read it. It had psi, you know, it took a psychological X-ray of you. It knew about your decision-making. It knew what your vocabulary was. It implied your educational level. It was capable of doing all of these things without you having any idea that you were doing anything else except something like filling out a form, doing a, uh, doing this zookeeper game. We built it into all of these things. But what was and, and amazing.
8: Is, pardon me for interrupting, right. but this is 2008, right? Around 2008, you're you said 15 right. years ago. And yeah. just look at how far this stuff has come in the next you, iteration. Right? You've,
2: you've got it. You know, this was stuff we were doing for DARPA at the time and uh, all of this stuff gathered information. This thing never got stupider. It always got smarter. So you've got people, I've got a, I've got a good friend who is probably the, the best person in the world about gray zone operations. And he talks about, super empowered individuals, exactly like Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates, who I'll I'll happily kill if ever I can. Uh, But those are people who have this outsized effect. They have have goals for you, (laughs) goals for me, all of the people who are truly beneath them. And if you ever had a warm and fuzzy for Elon Musk, Remember what he said recently about President Zelensky. He said he's a butcher. He's sending young men to die. Really? Somebody kicked the door in on his nation and started raping and killing and burning and seizing his territory. Who's the butcher, Elon? Ah, and we're a little off topic, but we, uh, Send your mind you you've you've got a you've got a place here, uh, you know, talking about this will be a good thing.
8: Cheers, brother. I really appreciate thanks, you Thanks, here. Chuck. Thank you um,
4: yeah, thanks. Send your, send your mind. Uh, Incognito, you're next. One last question for Chuck hey. and, then, and then he has to go, I think. Thank you,
10: um, uh, Will. Thank you, uh, Chuck. I My question is, is going to take us back to the battlefield. But by the way, I don't disagree with anything you just said about Elmo Muscovite. Um, but that aside, um, DB raised a point earlier that reminded me of uh, something that I heard just yesterday uh, uh, from uh, one of your buddy John Spencer's favorite podcasts called um, uh, Ukraine, the latest from uh, the UK newspaper called the telegraph um which i'm sure you are familiar with because your buddy john spencer is not only a a participant but a a a daily listener according to himself and so what dominic nichols who is one of the most uh amazing and gifted and articulate and and entertaining all-in-one voices on uh what's going on in ukraine um he's a uh Chuck knows this, but maybe a lot of other people don't, a lot of other people listening don't. Um, he's a, a, a retired, um, currently retired, um, uh, a British, uh, officer. I can't remember what branch he's in. He was mentioning that when he was in the Gulf during the war, uh, against Iraq, there were Iraqi minefields that they were able to breach using thermobaric bombs, and he wondered where those are. Why aren't any of those being offered to Ukraine, considering the, the in- extremely dense and, and thick minefields that the, the Russians have laid, have laid on Ukrainian territory? To, so that they don't have to cede any of that territory. And I, that was the first I'd heard in in my uh, current memory, my, my uh, aging memory of uh, thermobaric bombs wielded by um, NATO forces. And I wonder if you could shed any light on that. What are they? How many are there? Why? And why the hell haven't we given any to Ukraine? Um, I hope that was articulate enough. Thank you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It brings to mind the mother of all bombs, right? Which is a, uh, it's a fuel aerosol bomb. It's dropped out of a cargo plane. It's so big. It's the size of about two Cadillacs stacked on top of each other. It falls to the ground under a parachute. And as it gets closer to the ground... It emits uh, fuel. It it emits, uh, you know, an aerosol of uh, gasoline. It can emit. Uh, it can emit other other things. It it emits this cloud of highly volatile fuel, and it sets it off. So there is a terrific low brisants, uh explosion and brassant's high brassant's uh, high explosives. So plastic explosive detonates at a very high linear rate. Uh, that's, and it can cut steel and do other things because it, it has a high rate of detonation. Lower brisant's charges are just as destructive, but you think of it this way. Uh, high explosive is like your car in fifth gear. Low brisant's explosions, like a fuel aerosol explosion, thermobaric, explosion that's your car like in low low and four wheel drive it they can push things out of the way they don't cut things but they push them uh there are different types of uh fuel aerosol bombs the problem is they they tend to be big and you've got to deliver them to the battlefield so they were used in the gulf war where you know, you could fly a C-130 at 5,000 feet over the battlefield because you have air superiority, because you've got air defense dominance. You've been able to push back the enemy uh, the enemy surface to air missile sites so they can't pick off that lumbering C-130. You know, so it, there's that complicated problem. You've got a larger munition with a larger output Uh, It has to be delivered by, you know, by some aircraft that can carry that great big thing. And right now, uh, every Ukrainian airstrike has got to fly this same course. It's got to come in at, at 100 feet off the deck or less. And I've seen them flying at, you know, 30 or 40 feet. They've got to pop up, release their munitions, and then sort of do an emelman. Right? So they pop up, turn on their back, then turn around and fly away as fast as possible. So it would be a great application. I also dug into the ordnance research uh, on that. The Department of Defense kicked around some physics numbers and uh, said, absolutely, it appears to be, you know, this is a plausible use of these weapons to destroy the minefields, but we can't even give them attackums. And right now Ukraine can't solve the delivery problem to get that, get that ordinance on the ground in front of them. So we can see how interdependent all of these, you know, everything that goes into land warfare, you know, your close air support, your air defense, your, you know, the status of the sky above the contested portions of this battlefield. And, uh, it is, uh, it isn't an insoluble problem it's a problem that Washington can solve if it gets off its butt. So that's just a real short take on that. But, uh, yeah, uh, if you scan around, I'm sure you can, that, that department of defense assessment was, was just in the news. So if you type in, uh, you know, uh, fuel aerosol bombs and mine cleaning, uh, mine clearance, I think you'll, you'll get to see that DOD, uh, article.
4: Thanks, Chuck. Uh, yeah, that is an interesting read, and um, I'll, I'll note that uh, Ukraine is producing some of its own fuel. Uh, air uh, mission—they uh, have taken uh, captive some of those TOS-1A thermobaric launchers, and they have made themselves some of their own thermobaric uh, rockets to put in those. Uh, not not great in number, and uh, uh, but the particular thing about a thermobaric weapon is in those built-up areas, as it Chuck said they, they work on static overpressure and you know you can kill things without touching them if you generate enough what's called static overpressure in a room in which they're existing so they're particularly devastating and they were why I was quite worried about the Toss 1As back in Bakhmut and and really enjoyed seeing them be targeted each and every day that they were uh, and, and they do take priority because they're a nasty weapon. Some people have suggested they, you know, should be considered uh, uh, an illegal weapon. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't support that. I think they are devastating. Um, I wish Russia didn't have them and Ukraine did. But, uh, yeah, they're uh, probably uh, the big ones, uh, the bigger ones, are uh, could be a good way to quickly clear minefields, as that defense report says that uh, Chuck referenced. So, Chuck, have you got time for one more question? It looks like Karen is here, or do you need to now disappear, sir?
2: You know, I can do a really a really quick one, and then I will have to tuck and run, as we as we say. But yeah, Karen, absolutely.
4: I'll give you an Australian peel off. Karen, go ahead.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an oh, well, we inside just, joke. We just appreciate yeah, absolutely.
13: you so much. And every, every Tuesday and Thursday that you're here for bullet points is just a real treat for everybody. You know, you keep us updated and informed. And um, we should get college credit for listen to you, listening to your bullet points, in my opinion. Underwater but, uh,
2: basket weaving with Chuck.
13: <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have a question. And if it is too sensitive, put it off. I might have to DM it to you. If you'd rather not answer it, let me know. Do you expect Colonel Roman Chervinsky, Ukrainian intelligent colonel, to be cleared and released from jail?
2: Wow, that yes. you know what we we don't. We, I, I don't really fully understand what he's done.
13: Um, I'm not sure either.
2: You see that's that's just it. So I don't know if this is a political dismissal you know political dismissal isn't isn't really the right term. Uh, if you're the commander-in-chief of a Democratic Republic, you you can you know m- my commission was signed and it says I serve at the pleasure of the President. And every, every officer in the United States military, that's what your commission says. You're, you're going to have your job, whether you're a lowly Lieutenant commander or Lieutenant general, or a, you know, Admiral of the fleet. If the president no longer requires your services, he doesn't need a reason. Right. He, so I, I really don't know what he's done and I don't want to tar him with the brush of, of any other rascal who has been rooted out, uh, you know, and, and has been found to be wanting in either his patriotism or his, uh, uh, you know, his financial uh, uprightness. So I, I don't know, but I'm watching that too.
13: Okay. I will just interject one more thing. There is a, uh, an article in a certain newspaper that begins with WP that uh, caused a regular firestorm and I thought I was gonna be shot in front of a firing uh, squad for even mentioning it. And that says that uh, there was information obtained by the CIA that was shared by Jake uh, Texera, uh, you know the guy from the Massachusetts National Guard that uh, put a bunch of uh, uh, confidential information on Discord on his uh, uh, while he was sitting at his mother's uh, kitchen table? That idiot. Well, according to this newspaper that we will not mention, because some of what they said was just nonsense, uh, but according to this... Uh, uh, there was information about this colonel and Ukraine. And it is a big freaking mess. And uh, there is uh, a lot in that article that is BS. Uh, but there are some things that, you know, are, you know how something will kind of sit in the back of your mind and you don't feel quite comfortable with d- dismissing it? Well, I'd love to dismiss the whole thing. I hope the guy gets cleared. I really do. But, um, yeah, it, it, this is a story to watch and hope that it turns out well. And uh, one thing I did read is that none of it was uh, connected to uh, President Zelensky. And I hope there will be no repercussions uh, on aid to Ukraine because of it. Uh because that would be completely unfair and unjust. And uh, I will try not to worry about this. And uh, if you have anything that you can share that later on when things become more apparent uh, that you feel is wise to share, uh, it would be interesting to hear.
4: Thanks, Karen. Um, And yeah, thanks, Chuck. Uh... Uh, thanks very much for your time, uh, as always. And I—I uh, I, was a really pl- a pleasure for me to get to work with you finally. Um, and I think you're back again on Tuesdays for me, but or yeah, Monday for you. I can't remember Wednesday and Friday. What, what is it for you in America? Yeah, it's
2: uh, yeah t- Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I'm going to be traveling, mm-hmm. and I will actually be joining you from the United States next week. So that that will be. That will be uh, you're unusual just coming and to nice. The,
3: you're, you're just coming to the U.S. because you want to have turkey and, and Canadian you Thanksgiving have, was last. You
2: month. have got it. I uh, I I sucked up the Canadian Thanksgiving and I always get a second turkey dinner and absolute
4: double dipping. Those those, <laughs> those double those, dipping. I know how to do all that. Double dipping.
2: So Prince Heather, good to hear you. Will I know? I everybody's in good hands. Uh, thank you. Thanks everybody for coming up. Uh, listen, uh, I'm not the show. You're, you're the show. The questions are the show. Uh, and, uh, it, we're all family here. It's, uh, it's so great to hear old friends every night and will I almost got to work with you, but, uh, we will, we will get that done. And hopefully Alan will be with us soon. He, uh, he lives in the boonies like I do and, uh, his internet was not helping him at all tonight. So, I will see you soon, everybody.
4: Thanks, Chuck. And here, here, yeah. Well, we'll we hope to see Alan back uh, tomorrow.
2: Okay, man. I see you, everybody. Good night. Thanks so much. And uh, Prince Heather, give them hell. Will you have the con,
3: Slava Ukraine. Thank you, sir.
2: Slava, Slava Ukraine.
4: Peter Slava. Aram Slava.